Do you find yourself burdened by the unbearable weight placed on you by watching the inevitable decline of agency you have in your personal or professional life? Are you existentially exhausted from having all the work you've done to bring justice and fairness to the people you care about? Do you need a break from the picket line after seeing all your hopes and dreams crushed under the boot of capitalistic fascists who want you to work for scraps while they reap the reward of your labor? Well, friends, I invite you to come on down to Hubblegate's Discount Furniture Emporium, located just outside Sacramento, California. We've got refurbished sofas, tables, bed frames, dressers, chests of drawers, and so much more. All at a price that won't pull you further into the despair of debt that the man really wants you neatly nestled in. This weekend, we're having our annual Damn the Man sale. No credit, no cosigners needed. Just good, honest people selling good, honest products. We've got quality goods at quality prices, so don't worry about breaking the bank. Besides, they're already hard at work breaking the backs of the working class and breaking the laws enforced on all of us. Golly! So bring the kids and shop our great deals while they enjoy hot dogs, snow cones, fireworks, and other youthful distractions that will keep them from having to think about their future that our government is proactively firebombing. Bring your union card and receive a 40% discount on your entire purchase. Don't have a union card? Shout Ayatse while finalizing your purchase and that discount is yours. Are you just feeling down and need a like mind to talk with? Well, ask for Hub himself and get a story that will make you forget whatever troubles might be on your mind. Hubble Gates Discount Furniture Emporium. What did we build it for? We built it for you. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to highly fixated reviews of large, dense books, comprising mostly informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts. My name is Cody. I'm Luke. And I'm Will. Um, so we are going to be talking about uh, Chapter 13 of Vineland. We're chugging right along. We only have a couple weeks left here before we reach the end of our fourth book for our slow, long read-through of Thomas Pinchon's entire canon. Um, and third book. I think this is... A, this is oh, yeah, this is our third book. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. If you caught the secret shows, it's our fourth book. Yeah, absolutely. We've actually covered um, Gravity's Rainbow already, and that's all in the secret episodes that you can only find if you're, you're clever you enough. You have to... You have to back backtrack through the previous episodes, like on old cassettes, where you could rewind to a, a hidden track or old CDs. You have to play uh, play our episodes backwards. Yeah, mm-hmm. it'll give you the coordinates to a particular mountain range where we've stashed hard drives <laughs> that contain the episodes on Gravity's Rainbow master tapes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so going into chapter. 13 what are what are you guys' general thoughts as usual we'll start there i so, we would kate and i were talking uh before the show started um i i think because this is, this is the third time i've read this book i i think i've actively block out this chapter and the next chapter uh <laughs> just because it's so dark 
Um, it's very, very good. Like from a writing standpoint, the prose is excellent. The character building is excellent. It's, it's just a harrowing read to get through. And it's, I, 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 there's almost no light in this particular chapter. Um, it is, it is very bleak. It's very, um, just rough, but it's a, it's still very well written. So, mm-hmm. so you're saying the chapter 13 of Vineland is, is Pinchon's black pill. <laughs> Those aren't my words. Will, uh, you pointed out ironically that there is almost no light. You're absolutely right. Um, what did you think about this chapter? <laughs> I, I allowed myself to, to get swept away by the prose uh, as I read through it a few different mm-hmm. times this week. And uh, yeah, no, that doesn't, that, do, that wasn't that protective against how heavy it is. Because it, I mean, the previous chapter and the one prior, I think that if you tear up a bit in a couple of those scenes, that makes a lot of sense. In this one, it almost brought me to tears just in that kind of, oh my god, the world is horrible. This is so just, much. We should just curl yeah. into a ball and just let let things end. Just end it all. <laughs> That's the kind of crying that I felt like doing at the end of this chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really lovely though in in terms of how it's put together. I I, I think that the way that uh, you get this really intense characterization that doesn't leave the kind of cartoonish attitude that people love about pension in general mm-hmm. and that 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 back and forth between the tone is uh you know it's enough levity to keep to keep me going at least no fan yeah luke what about you oh uh, yeah so i mean yet again i'm a little bit kind of this chapter wasn't my favorite i enjoy, I enjoyed a large large portions of it uh the middle especially the mm-hmm. ending is good. Um, to be maybe overly explicit, there's just too much of a emphasis on Brock and his penis and what his penis wants. Boy, that's, that's almost another character in this chapter. Yeah, yeah that's, it's like what, yeah. Is, what his yep. penis is doing. We always have to hear about what his penis is doing. Um, and I I get why Pynchon does that. You know, it's partially to kind of make us even more annoyed with Brock than we already are. Um, putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, yeah. Uh, I don't know. In general, I, I actually realized this week that I've been kind of having an easier time, like internalizing my thoughts on Pinchin than I have externalizing the thoughts. Um, because generally this book is is getting a lot more dense. You know, there's the part, the last chapter that we went over the, the part about the the children's song and the, the little people dancing on Weed's face or whatever. Um. You know, this chapter has the whole Brock Vaughn's like female half uh, coming out, and that that little part is you have to. I found myself having to reread it a few times to actually get what he was talking about. Yeah, well, it's whenever he like it's yeah. revealed that he has like a female anima animos. Um, yeah, I had to read that part a him. couple times too. Because a lot of it scans is random if you're just kind of reading it once and moving on. Um, specifically. The uh, the careful product of older men phrase, um, even like the phrase "white mother city," a lot of stuff can kind of if you if you if you blow by it, um, it's not gonna 
it's hard to follow. But rereading it obviously is it was a joy, and I did. I there's there's some really strong parts of this chapter. Uh, we'll get to them, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, like I said, I I get why Pynchon does what he does in terms of making us hate Brock Bond. Um, it's just you know this chapter I don't think was was designed to be uh, as y'all have already kind of gone over. Actually, um, it wasn't designed to be a very hopeful or positive or enjoyable chapter. Um, and I don't know. I guess I'm maybe in a bit of a rush to get to, to the end of this, the ending of this book because I remember the ending. I want to say it's pretty cinematic and and fun to read. So I am I am kind of just wanting to get there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree with everything you guys have said. I mean, it's it's once again like the the writing in this book really takes off. I think in chapter nine. Not that there isn't you know great things to talk about prior to that and we've we've talked about them but it really feels like in chapter nine Pinchon really takes off into what this book is and what he's really going to spend obviously like the heart of this book discussing and, and talking about and it's just continued just on an upward clip of just how magnificently written all of these chapters are it just feels like every time he can't get better like the next chapter comes along and it just it just is in the yeah. way that he's developing the characters in a way that he gives you know, eventually the, the reader a mind into the monster, so to speak, through this chapter here, which is something that I always love when, when Pinchon does. He doesn't do it in every book that he's written, but these chapters where he gives, you know, the reader some some more insight into his antagonist and, and actually has the reader spend time with them, I always find them very interesting. He 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 picks very interesting villains and gives them equally interesting motivations and sort of, I guess, uh, psyche or psychology like they're they're all so many of them are all terrible but but man do i hate brock more than i hate hector in the iliad like i just every time i don't think that my estimation for this man can drop lower and my hatred can drop higher he just manages to get it done um you know i there there's a very real possibility that by the time and i realize this is kind of a weird thing to say but given this you know sort of book standing with a lot of the crowd that this book will have risen higher up my list of of rating after we finish reading it this time. Um, you know, I I put it in the sort of upper half of the pinch on I have read, which is everything minus um, against the day. But man, after going through this book with you guys and and getting into all of the details and the kind of real thematic thrusts and nooks and crannies of it, I just I I love it so much more than the first time that I, I read it and a lot of what goes on in this chapter would be a good sort of explanation for people as to why I like it so much. Um, this and probably the last chapter, especially. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I can say the same thing really about all, you know, the other two books that we've done so far. I think, I think part of the, and you know, we've talked about this as far back as the, the intro episode. Um, you know, part of what makes Pinchon's work so enjoyable is the fact that you, can essentially re-experience it from different angles um, every time you read it and come away with something completely different and, and absolutely changed your, your perspective on it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like we were just talking about um, it, you know, being able to, I think, discuss it with, you know, for, for us, I think being able to discuss it amongst ourselves is beneficial, but I would encourage people, you know, listening uh, to to take advantage of the opportunities of unlike you know Reddit where you you can talk to other people about it and 
or get a book group together. Like if you already have an existing book club, like recommend, I think Vineland is a great entry point for Pinchon and especially mm-hmm. for people who are willing to, um, put the work in of, you know, what a book club does essentially and, and want to, um, discuss a, a book on a sort of granular level. It doesn't necessarily have to be as in-depth as we get, but to just be able to bounce ideas off of other people and, and kind of have a discussion about it, I think can change not just Pinchon's work. I think really any, any book or any art that you take in benefits mm-hmm. from discussion with other people, whether it's someone who agrees with you or someone who disagrees with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree completely. And just as a, as an extra word to anyone who's using the audiobook, um, chapter 13 is split uh, once again into multiple chapters in the audiobook. So um, it, it doesn't just start on it. And at this point, I want to say this, according to the audiobook, is chapter 17. Oh, wow. Um, because of the, the splitting that's happened. But yeah, this, this chapter comprises chapters 16 and 17 of the audiobook. So if you're going along with with that just just keep that in mind as i've learned from the earlier <laughs> audiobook chapters that did the exact same thing so do we have any general thoughts before we want to jump into the the details of the chapter and take this odyssey into the mind of an evil evil broken man we just we had to just dive into it i don't know yeah that's fair so the 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 chapter opens with with brock at his prep institution which has been set up as essentially a a place to convert um, not true believers, but people caught up in, in the hippie culture into informants, which again is another link between this book and Inherit Vice. Obviously what Brock is doing here is very similar to what the LAPD does with Vigilant California, especially as they talk about the ability to, to sort of re-infiltrate people time and time again into these different social institutions. Um, did we have any thoughts on on this organization and how it was built? I think there's there's a section in there that I'll I'll read in a moment. But if I have to sort of play like a devil's advocate here, it really does highlight how. Let me think of how to phrase this. Despite its inherent awfulness, there is a certain. Um, I guess intellectualism that's at play here that needs to be appreciated in that they, they could, this plan could not have succeeded without careful thought and execution. Um, and, and Brock was the mastermind sort of, I think behind that. Um, it's not as simple as just like bringing these people in and, and sort of, you know, working them over until they say whatever you want them to say. Like this is a calculated, very precise kind of situation where these people are being, manipulated into what Brock and, and his people want them to be. So there is a certain level of uh, impressiveness in the planning of it and the execution of it, disgusting as it is, um, that I think lends a lot to understanding Brock as a character. Like this isn't just some big broody dude who's able to get what he wants by force. Like he's smart enough to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, True. I do think it's important that uh, the it's basically a concentration camp that we're at in the beginning, um, and it's not even an illegal one because uh, it's it is important. I think that the legislation to fund and uh, legally justify like them holding these people um, is yet to be passed. I want to mm-hmm. say that's in the beginning of the chapter. Um, it is, yeah. I do, you know, like that type of rule breaking, you know, like the the legal side of the justice system 
uh, doing illegal stuff. I do think it's important to note that. Um, and I also, yeah, I just I wanted to point out that although it's not you know necessarily a a Holocaust style uh, concentration camp, it's you know it's they don't they don't have food necessarily. Um, you know, it's it's not a very happy place to be, and it's not even legal that they're there that they're being held. Very true. Yeah, and yeah. and to get to Cody's point about the sort of intelligence or, or at least planning or strategy to it. I mean, A, what you were saying reminded me of the fact that I think it was Nixon who said that Henry Kissinger was one of the most gifted strategists in history. Yeah. yeah. Of, of course, that comes with the caveat that he was one of the worst people who ever lived. Yeah. Um, but it, it is very true in that from a standpoint of if you're willing to use war crimes to win whatever sort of conflict you're in, he, he certainly was a gifted strategist in that regard. Um, but it, it, it does come with an interesting aspect of of the motivation of the people who are involved i mean brock very explicitly says to his partner roscoe like I, i'm not interested in in the people who are who are true believers in this they're not going to give us anything i'm interested in the people who are are adopting this subculture co-opting aspects of the subculture just because they want to get laid or just because they maybe want to smoke some weed the people who are at the fringes of it sort of pretending and in exchange for that the fbi is willing to give them you know that dream of returning to being a younger person, right? That that one more semester of college, that one more course credit they have to get, which of course they're use, utilizing to, you know, put them into these different subversive groups to to break them apart. But for them, it's giving them some sort of primal need to to a be a part of that culture, but also b to relive their younger days. Which especially given the monologue about Fernessi at the end of this chapter goes to show that he understands the motivation of people being interested in returning to those younger years. I thought the yeah. the juxtaposition of that at the beginning versus Frenessi's, you know, admission at the end of the chapter was a really genius point by by Pinchon and how he structured this. Yeah. So the the passage I was going to point out and I'm glad you you brought that up because that's exactly where I was um looking at it's on page 269. Brock Vaughn's genius was to have seen in the activities of the 60s left not threats to order, but unacknowledged desires for it. While the tube was proclaiming youth revolution against parents of all kinds, and most viewers were accepting the story, Brock saw the deep, if he'd allowed himself to feel it, the sometimes touching, need only to stay children forever, safe inside some extended national family. The hunch was the hunch he was betting on was that these kid rebels, being halfway there already, would be easy to turn and cheap to develop. They'd only been listening to the wrong music, breathing the wrong smoke, admiring the wrong personalities. They needed some reconditioning. The word reconditioning is is really important. I think that it comes because yes. that's it lends a very chilling mm-hmm. um, feel to the end of that paragraph. Yeah, and it leads perfectly into the next paragraph where, like you were talking about, Luke, that this is essentially a concentration camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially, I like that you highlighted the use of the term reconditioning, because especially because we've we've seen that with the visits from weed and the dentist, like that is that is the image of yeah. reconditioning that the reader has been given. Which, yeah, Brock is essentially saying, like, you know, we just need to to mess them up a little bit in order to in order to get them where we need them. It's just it's so evil. Well, and I, I find it really interesting the way that throughout all of this. The, the narrator is refraining from putting any kind of perspective in other than Brock's. Mm-hmm. It, it's 
really telling the way that he has entirely internalized this this Lombroso's criminological theories and has right. therefore decided that this justifies the dehumanization of all of his political uh, opponents. And the, the way that we see that is uh, uh, disturbing. It's uh, mm-hmm. how I'm going to leave it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, an amazing commentary on, you know, the fact that oftentimes in things like imperial rule or in, you know, government reconditioning and all of that, there is also a, a fetishization that takes place of the people that are being, quote unquote, you know, conquered. And that is absolutely the mindset, to your point, Will, that Brock has. And it's it's so important that they give us the backstory of how he, like, learned about this this theory of criminology and the fact that it keeps getting brought up as the chapter goes on. Like, they keep just using that same phrase whenever he's looking at women or whenever he's, you know, talking about his strategies for the future. Pinchon's reminding you that it all comes from this this sort of fruit of the poison tree that he gave you the history of earlier. And that Brock knows is complete bullshit. Like Mm -hmm. he just doesn't care. It fits what he wants. And so he's going to continue to use it. Yeah. Not only, not only that, but apparently (laughs) he not only finds it, you know, compelling for his own ends, but was willing to believe in phrenology too during that, during that section. They, they basically, I believe the wording is which sounded reasonable to him. Like, talk about immediately telling your reader what kind of person this is. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I, I read a lot about Lombroso's um, facial analysis kind of stuff when I did some criminal justice classes in college a long time ago. And it's, it basically, for anyone who is not fully aware of what it is, it's basically phrenology 2.0. Like, it's mm-hmm. just a continuation of that that moves from just the shape of the cranium to overall facial features and how. I, I say specific in quotes, uh, facial features are determinators of uh, uh, predilection towards crime, which essentially boils down to this shit's racist as hell. And it just gives us a reason to target specific minority groups and accuse them of being criminals because they have the faces of people who would normally be criminals. Which, I mean, to, you know, Pinchon throws directly into the text, which is yeah. excellent. Um, just for the purpose of, illumination i'll read out that paragraph which is on page 272 brock scanned face after face registering stigmata a parade of receding foreheads thermorphic ears and alarmingly sloped frankfurt horizontals he was a devotee of the thinking of pioneer criminologist cesare lombroso 1836 to 1909 who'd believed that the brains of criminals were short on lobes that controlled civilized values like morality and respect for the law tending, indeed, to resemble animal more than human brains, and thus cause the crania that housed them to develop differently, which included the way their faces would turn out looking. Abnormally large eye sockets, proganthism, frontal submicrocephaly, Darwinian tipped ear, you name it. Lombroso had a list that went on, and skull data to back him up. By Brock's time, the theory had lapsed into a quaint, undeniably racist spin-off from 19th century phrenology, Crude in method and long superseded, although it seemed reasonable to Brock. What really got his attention was the Lombrosian concept of Masonism. Radicals, militants, revolutionaries, however they styled themselves, all sinned against this deep organic human principle, which Lombroso had named after the Greek for hatred of anything new, 
It operated as a feedback device to keep societies coming along safely, coherently. Any sudden attempt to change things would be answered by an immediate misoniastic backlash, not only from the state, but from the people themselves. Nixon's election in 68 seeming to Brock to a perfect example of this. So it sounds like you did research about that, Cody. Is that concept also in his um, the Lombroso's writing? Yeah. From what I remember, it's been 10 plus years, I think, since I took those classes. But yeah, that sounds accurate for it. I just, I remember the general concept of it and that basically it was, you know, he, he essentially created that, like I said, to supplant phrenology because phrenology was already falling by the wayside at that point and being discounted mm-hmm. rightfully so. Um, so it's just, it's just repackaged phrenology essentially. But yeah, it basically like, tried to boil down not just the, the idea of a specific face type being marked as one who would more often commit crime. He tried to get like hyper specific with the type of, uh, crime or type of personality that a person's face could, would determine the path essentially that they would be on. It -hmm. was, it's really interesting to read about, but it's, you know, again, one of those horribly racist, uh, tools and, and relics of, of the past that probably is still believed by a really uncomfortable number of people today. Mm-hmm. I think it's the reason I asked that is I think it's interesting that he includes that concept of Masonism because you could almost say that something like that is what Pinchon writes about a lot of the time in that these different social movements come up that Brock is viewing as criminal, right? But from a different perspective, they're not. It's people rising up against their oppressor or, you know, trying to to lead to some sort of progressive push towards a better future. And then it does lead to these counter forces coming in and breaking it up. So it is, it is describing the very a system that Brock exists within in insofar as his actions are concerned. But I feel like it also gets to the fact that th- this is something that Pinchon writes about all the time. These these as we've talked about a lot over Vineland, these moments of of social change or social upheaval or just great sort of tides changing in history that oftentimes are styled against these forces and counterforces constantly working against one another. I find that really interesting to include in this chapter. So it is, I just looked it up, it is a real word. It's not part of Lombroso's um, ideology or concept that I can find, at least on a surface level glance, but um, Masonism is a hatred, fear, or intolerance of innovation or change. So Sure, gotcha. I did want to ask everyone when it's talking about what they can do for these informants if they if they sign up that if they're a good enough informant they can even take them on a time machine. Are you guys interpreting that literally as in the FBI has the power to make them younger if they are as cooperative as possible or are you interpreting that more allegorically within the perspective of they're just sending them back to their younger years in college? I interpret it yeah, I interpreted it as allegorical. Um, I forget what the, what's the movie. Is it curious? Like, there's that movie with um, where like the girl goes back to high school as like a journalist. Oh, um, never been kissed. Is that it? Yeah, I mean that's what? maybe a weird pull to to uh, <laughs> yeah bring up right Unexpected. now. Um, but it's like that. Like, there's an element of wish fulfillment in that movie, um, and I do think that you know, like I don't everyone I everyone I at least in their twenties, probably 
has, who went to college probably has some urge or desire to go back and rectify wrongs or do things that they didn't do. Um, so I, I think that's what it's talking about is that kind of wish fulfillment. Yeah. Well, and I think it's pretty, it's spelled out in that paragraph that we read earlier about, you know, the, the people that they were targeting specifically to bring in for this project was people who were kind of searching for that, that passage back to their youth or back to that specific time, like you were saying, Luke. And um, so, yeah, I think that's what they're, they're basically saying like, yeah, we can give you, you know, whatever resources you might need to go back and do like, we can, we can put you in a position that you can make those changes or go back to that part of your life, which obviously is empty promises, but you know, that's their bait right there. Mm -hmm. Very true. I do love your inclusion of the fact that Brock is drinking decaf coffee. The man is so, uh, He's so anti-drug that he will so not do caffeine, which is <laughs> funny because I, I had a, <laughs> there's a friend of my dad's who was, um, I forget where we were, we were probably fishing or something like that. And he was, um, the discussion of drug use came up at some point in time and he was talking about people, you know, I can't believe these people would put that stuff in their bodies and you know, alter their brain chemistry and all that. And I'm like, you're drinking beer right now. Alcohol is a depressant. <laughs> that's a drug. You had coffee this morning. That's caffeine. That's a drug. Like. I think people tend to forget, you know, things like caffeine are considered drugs, but Brock certainly doesn't forget that. And I think that was put in there for a reason to kind of highlight that hyper um, fixation on his part of, you know, I'm not going to do any drugs because that would put me in their camp. I mean, it also sets up the fact that later on he sees the, DE, the DEA as his next stepping stone in his career. Like he's mm -hmm. already he's already on that, you know, even even during his FBI days back in the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, to me, it also, it's it re it's reminiscent of Mormonism. True. Um, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, growing up, when I went to high school in Colorado Springs, there was a fair amount of Mormons around. Um, there's a fair amount of Mormons in Colorado. So I've been around them. Uh, Mormon Mormons a fair amount. And yeah, they don't drink caffeine. They don't do any drugs. Um, it also brings to mind the fact that I think at least the modern-day federal government and the modern-day FBI uh, are known to like prefer and search out Mormons uh, for their agents, for their field agents and, you know, the whole thing, because Mormons view America as like the promised land is like the Holy land, you know, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Um, yeah. So I, I, and I do think that that's in there in the subtext, because I have to imagine that pension. I, I do think that pension is, is like, he's going to be aware of Mormonism and he's going to be aware that it's an ultra conservative, um, force in America are largely ultra conservative, and um, you know they would have been that would have been a big voting block even back in the sixties. Yeah, well, I mean, even Flatweed and Borderline in Inherent Vice are Mormons. They they offer DACA a copy of the Book of Mormon for free just for helping them out. So Pinchon definitely understands that connection very well. What uh, what did we think about Roscoe, um, Brock's long-term partner? To be honest, I, I didn't... This is probably my least favorite part of this chapter. I, I found his POV kind of confusing in terms of where and when we were. And uh, I do get that it's kind of we're getting an outsider's view on Brock, an outsider who's still on the inside of the Justice Department. Um, you know, it's a view of Brock that we haven't seen before and that I don't think we really see again. Um, and 
I, I is Roscoe's partner or his subordinate? And that's an open question because I, I really couldn't tell. He's really both. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a weird. It's because there's Roscoe at one point saved Brock. Brock's um, life, yeah. Yeah, my, which my understanding is that Roscoe was at one time a FBI agent who was corrupt. Internal affairs came to him and basically Brock threw him a bone and essentially said, like, I'll get you out of this internal affairs mess if you are eternally loyal to me and are constantly That's... working off that debt. And then that action movie sequence took place when they were doing a raid on a on a dope farm where Roscoe saved his life, but even after that, Brock did not change the terms of their of their deal at all. Roscoe's still just driving him around and is still, you know, in that man's debt, even though by all yeah. estimation saving his life should have paid that off. It's yeah, that's that's exactly I think pretty indicative of their relationship like brock has manipulated this person into essentially doing whatever he needs him to do despite mm-hmm. the fact that there's you know the scales have balanced and more so probably i think um and yeah i do i did like that roscoe also going back to the tv trips thing mentioned that after that whole you know saving brock thing he referred to it as uh being in a movie of the week mm-hmm. uh which is you know that's how that whole thing kind of read in the first place but yeah, I think the whole, like, really the only thing I took away from their relationship was exactly like you said, Kate, like, it just highlights, again, the the lengths that Brock will go to to use someone to his benefit and not concern himself with the impact it has on that person. Yeah, definitely. And I, I will say, I agree, uh, Cody, that this book does, is making itself into a pretty good, like, introductory to Pinchon recommendation. Obviously, like, Inherent Vice and... Lot 49 are always the default ones that people go to. I would agree that Vineland kind of also sits there too. I will say if there's one difficulty, and I think this is sort of what Luke was, t- was getting at, it's that he does weave a lot of time periods and flashbacks yeah. and flash forwards together, especially in this last set of like five chapters, where you do have to be, if you are going to recommend this to somebody, perhaps do it with the caveat of like, be hyper aware of who is speaking at any given time and what time period they're talking about because there there is some real difficulty in this chapter when you're looking at it just from a constructive perspective of brock wakes up at you know his his self-made concentration camp and is looking for frenesi roscoe has him you know in his car and in his office and is recounting their history goes back to brock Brock is talking about his his belief in this phrenology 2.0 and then it describes out that whole philosophy and then goes to the third kind of person within this philosophy is and then it transitions to frenesi and the fact that frenesi has gone like that is a lot of flitting yeah. back and forth that if you're not paying it, attention to you can get lost it can be very disorienting absolutely and I, we touched on that back in was it chapter nine with when we got really lost in the weeds with uh, Vato and and um, um, blood, blood, yeah, and yeah. We, like it just yeah, it it can absolutely be disorienting. I think it's not as disorienting as some of his other work, um, but that's a good point. Like, yeah, if if you're bringing this to someone to read who's not read Penchon before, that is definitely something that they need to be aware of because it can definitely be. I don't want to say off-putting, but it can certainly. Um, shake you out of of really enjoying the book and if you get frustrated easily about that kind of stuff 
Um, so yeah, that's definitely a good recommendation. Yeah. And you know, I think it was Will who said like two episodes ago, this podcast is the result of the four of us endlessly reading this man's material and like yeah. becoming, you know, hyper fixated on it, so to speak. And even even we were stumped initially by that Vado and Blood thing. I eventually went back and like re listened yeah. to it and typed up an explanation, but it required a lot of concentrated effort. <laughs> it was great, but I think it took you like two days or something to get all it that did, yeah. sorted out, but it was very well done. We need to post that somewhere. Yeah, probably true. <laughs> um, so then that does that does bring us sort of out of that, you know, sort of flashback. And we get Brock Vaughn noticing that Frenessi is gone. And the sort of spiral of obsession that that pushes him into, which also brings up, you know, the first of Luke's points about how often his penis is mentioned because Frenessi disappearing sends him into this insane psychosexual obsession where he is just driving around looking for Frenessi or sleeping with anybody who seems to have the same characteristics that Frenessi does just to get close to this this woman that he without wanting to believe it has fallen for in some capacity I'm not saying it as in any kind of pure romantic love but he does have an obsessive love for this woman um, even though he he would not admit it if you asked him it's almost like Brock operates on a thin line where he's constantly straddling between being a an enforcer of the law and a serial killer. Yeah. Like his and this this chapter with where we really see his uh obsession with Fernesi really highlights that level of uh obsession. It made me think of um John Fowles' The Collector. I don't know if any of y'all have read that one. No. Um, it's a it's the story of a serial killer that's told from two POVs. The first being a a victim, like his current victim, and the second being the killer himself. And the scenes where you're getting the POV of the killer himself read like Brock. Like there is a a level of obsessiveness and attention to detail that this character is is putting out into the book. And it's yeah, it's like Brock is that same kind of psychology of like, this is my, this isn't even a person anymore. This is a, this is an object for him to have and possess and to do with what he wants. And I think Pinchon in, in this chapter, especially really does a good job and it must've been hard to write mm -hmm. someone absolutely objectifying and dehumanizing a person not always through action because Brock definitely does it through actions, but just through his, his view of that person. Yeah, yeah completely I, true. I, I think that a lot of this can be viewed as Brock, Brock being somebody who, um, to jump forward just a little bit in terms of what we're discussing, the, the nausea aspect of his personality, that, that Brock is somebody who has this incredible capacity as a, as a person, clearly, he he clearly can understand historical contexts in a sociological and scientific sense. Um, he can understand, you know, people on every level, mm -hmm. and he has chosen because of this weird aspect of his personality, this weird disgust-driven part of himself. He's chosen to 
put every part of himself into these like weird Lombroso as an exemplar uh, like paradigms of conceptualization that completely objectify himself and his own beliefs to the extent that when he's looking at Frenesi, sure, she's the sixth kind of, uh, of rebel. Um, and he's, he's in love with her in the way that love is supposed to be, right? Love is this. Love is obsession. Love is objectification. This is love, right? It's all of these things that he believes there should be, and he doesn't want to admit that he's a human that, is, that are driving all of these crazy parts of himself because he has so much control over himself, and all he can do is put people into these object order um, conceptualizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better myself. I think I... there's an aspect of objectification in the fact that um, Roscoe points out that... Uh, you know, there's so much stuff that Brock doesn't even have to think about, let alone like he doesn't he doesn't even realize he should be thinking about it. And that shows a kind of um, objectification of his underlings and those those that he views as beneath him who take care of stuff for him. And yet he is probably never even thinks about it and is probably blissfully unaware of it, even if it makes his job, you know, like it, it without that, his job wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Very true. It does require some degree of objectification to do that i know i brought up the sopranos like a few episodes ago but it does remind me of like the fact that the fbi does kind of come off like a villain in that tv show in the incredible callous way that they they treat their you know informants not all of whom are bad people like it's it is a recurring theme i think in a lot of media that deals with either confidential informants or in this case something far more sinister that Brock has blocked. Yeah. Brock has created, um, that rings probably very true to be on the other side of that in real life. I'd imagine we do before he notices that Furnessy's gone, we do get a great interaction between them where he tries to make the pitch for becoming an informant, which it, it's Furnessy gets some shots in at him that I appreciated, like calling mm -hmm. his his taste in music uh, outlawed by the Geneva Convention, <laughs> um, <laughs> which makes me really wonder what music he's listening to. Um, and then also, of course, like the real sad part where it says she started to laugh, coughed a while instead. Your taste in music, it's outlawed by the Geneva Convention, not a selling point, Captain. Did you think we were negotiating? Well, I thought we were flirting, Brock. Guess it's one more disappointment I'll have to live with. Like, her her doing that, you can interpret that as another flirt, but there has to be some, some truth in her statement there, as far as, like, yeah. Yeah. any sense that there was something romantic or real here is just continuing to get shattered with every interaction that she has with him, which has to be just so devastating for her to go through. Do we have any thoughts on Brock's dream in the next section where he flat where we flash back to when he was younger a little bit. It's definitely a very interesting portion. Like Luke mentioned earlier, I had to read this a couple of times to try and really sort out what was going on. Um, it, um, 
I don't know. It's it's just really interesting. It's a it's a really well written passage. Um, it sort of I don't know. I think it because of that dreamlike quality that it intentionally has. It makes it a little bit hard, at least for me, to to really sort out the specifics of of what he's trying to get at. Um, but it was a you know I I loved reading it, whether or not I really took a whole lot away from it that I can you know, verbalize. Um, mm-hmm. it was, it definitely does something for me, at least like in my brain that helps solidify Brock as a character. I'm not really sure how to like say what that is, but as a reader, like I get, I get what he's going at. Um, I just don't really know how to parse that out with words very well. Yeah. Before I get to my insane theory about this, does anyone else have thoughts on his dream or this section? Uh, I, I do think it's important um, that he uh, has like a female half that he obviously neglects. Mm-hmm. Um, it does kind of, you know, it's, I mean, you can, you can view it a few different ways, you know, like you can view it as his subconscious um, as an aspect of his subconscious. You can view it a few different ways. Uh, like I said, I, I just really love that part, the opening, the opening of the section. Uh, it's it's initially hard to parse, but the more effort you put into it, the the more you get out of it. Um, I do think that then the Mad Woman in the Attic thing that did remind me of um, White Sargasso Sea and whatever book I can't I haven't read any Jane Eyre. I think it's yeah Jane Eyre. I I do think that that's a reference to those two books. Yeah, I, I I had the same kind of connection. I, I I suspect that my crazy theory about this might connect with yours, Kate. Mm, okay. I'm gonna go very small scale for uh-huh. my description before letting you go all out because it sounds like you're more prepared than I am. <laughs> um, but I'm I I read a lot of this as Brock spends so much of his time like forcing the world around him into these Freudian categories. Because the, the all of the attitude around you know these people the, the hippies being people who don't want to grow up and him asserting himself as their uh, father figure in a very Freudian sense he <laughs> the, the, almost his subconscious has decided to internalize Jungian dynamics as a way of uh, not not as a way of coping but it's just like the natural outcome is that he has internalized this this very Freudian psychoanalysis reading of the world and so his brain because he is outthinking himself constantly is Jungian mm-hmm. yeah I can definitely see where you're getting at with that I think that there's one reading of this certainly to apply that after talking about his his feminine half that he has to tamp down that the dream is is manifesting out of a fear that that you know feminine half will eventually suffocate out his masculine half the more i thought about this though the the more i thought that potentially brock was sexually assaulted by a woman when he was younger i okay i I can see that because this this dream reads very heavily as a as a trauma loop of either something maybe to do with god forbid his mother or somewhere that he was working to as like a caretaker for the house or like another relative this idea that he has this endless loop of the same work 
over and over and over again of, you know, closing all the windows, closing all the doors and thinking that that is going to somehow potentially either stave off what is what he knows is going to happen or not. And then eventually having to confront the fact that there are windows and doors up in the attic where this woman lives that he has to go check on. And whether it is a sexual assault or a physical assault, an assault takes place once he is up there. And to me, especially when combined with the information later that Brock has a crippling fear of sex, but, yes, is, but yet is also obsessed by it, speaks to the very real reality that a lot of people who go through sexual trauma can have that duality where they do because a, a, you know, I hate to use the phrase sexual awakening in terms of an assault taking place, but where sexual abuse was your entrance into understanding sex as a concept or as a thing that people do can sometimes not for everybody breed a level of either risky sex or promiscuity later, but also a fear of those things because of that trauma that exists. To me, this reads as some kind of inbuilt, like I said, like traumatic loop of he was assaulted at one point in his life. He cannot get away from that. He's terrified of it, but he also has this attraction to to sex as something that is powerful or or dominant that if he can somehow dominate other women, if he can somehow you know exude his power of as it's mentioned many times in this in this chapter, his his penis, maybe in some way that can cut against the pain that sex was used against him when he was younger. That's my theory for what this dream and the the longer elucidation of his psyche in this in this chapter reveals. I th- I think you might be onto something. I'm in rereading it right now. Like it, I mean, it, the the word assault is explicitly used in here. Yeah. But the the last half of this paragraph. There is a a latent like paranoia and concern that is lingering over everything where he's checking all these rooms and hot and checking, you know, all these little areas to make sure that they're okay. But then the attic is the last place that he goes. And he, you know, there's he could hear her breathing waiting for him. Like mm-hmm. with with that in mind, that makes sense. Like I I think that absolutely could be the case is that something happened to him. And this is the trauma being processed by his brain. And I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you jump forward to that later kind of discussion of his Mm -hmm. relationship with sexuality, where the end of that paragraph, um, uh, in Nightmares, he was forced to procreate with women who approached never from floor or ground level, but from steep overhead angles as if from some place not on the surface of Earth, feeling nothing yep. erotic, but only each time it was done, a terrible sadness, violation, something taken away. He understood in some impossible, in some way impossible to face that each child he thus produced, each birth would only, would be only another death for him. Yeah, it's that, it's, it's, at some point in that very direct sense, he came to associate that kind of violation from above very very literal internalization of that kind of trauma yeah that would be the other that'd be the other really relevant quote to that especially not just from above potentially meaning attic but also from above how that woman whoever it may have been made him feel like you know being made to feel diminished 
especially when you're when you're a child who's likely of smaller physical stature than whoever the person who's assaulting you is but it's just it's never explicitly there on the page obviously Pinchot never says that but i don't think he has to that that was really my takeaway from from these sections is that i that's what i think he's trying to get at for the reader to to piece together for themselves I'm glad y'all don't think that's an insane theory. Have we had any theories not be like be insane? I don't. <laughs> I don't think we've had one that's been presented that we all, or even one of us, is like, no, that's yeah. way off base. <laughs> I don't think that's happened yet. So we need to work harder. Yeah, we need to get crazier. We're all, we're all just far too forgiving with each other. <laughs> so, do we have any further thoughts? on either that or are we ready to to move on to Furnessy? like poor well i guess we can talk about the the absolute horror that the fbi is willing to give him a wife basically or get him prostitutes to get him to calm down that's another section of this chapter yeah. that's so disgusting yep i just I, I think one of the things that i really like about this chapter about specifically about how we're shown the nuances that make up Brock is in the the descriptions of his meticulous attention to detail and minutia um when you know like uh, coming up here just after that scene we were talking about where we talked about but Brock didn't feel ah let me start that over but Brock didn't feel like any thug or more important look like one either. Whenever he shaved the humming small life solid in his hand, what he saw was Lombrosian evidence of a career plausibly honest enough to sell his ideas, his beliefs to anybody at any level. At, and the same went for his body image. And that's it, a long paragraph that I'm not going to read the whole thing of, but like we see multiple times in this chapter that Brock tends to hyperfixate on, on these little details and and break down these these larger things into smaller kind of compartmentalized concepts that end up defining him and i think that's a really important thing to to understand of him as a character and how mm-hmm. he works at at doing the things that he does in his life and how his mind works and um so i i love those passages like they're just so well written and and showing us how uh fixated he is on on this on detail of of so many aspects of his life yeah it's it's very true like there and there's a lot of just great individual like insights into that like on 276 where it says um though his defects of character were many none was quite as annoying as this naked itch to be a gentleman kept inflamed by a stubborn denial of what everyone else knew that no matter how much money he made how many political offices or course credits from charm school might come his way no one of these among whom he wished to belong would ever regard him as other than a thug whose services had been hired. Like, even he is searching for some kind of recognition or connection, as evil as he is, and is desperately, uh, like, desperately disappointed, I guess is maybe what what I would say, or, or just depressed about the fact that it's never going to come to him. And then, of course, yeah. when we when we take this and apply it to the relationship with Frenessi, that is essentially what she is looking for as well. Like she, yeah. she is looking for that same level of connection, which undergirds the fact that these two end up with, with one another, like in this very like evil, vicious loop that gets elucidated over these last couple chapters. Like it, it, did it start with, with Frenessi's fetish for uniforms? Yeah, probably. 
but also in the months that they you know were having these long range hookups with one another and the obvious sort of procession of intimacy to just sort of truth telling and you know kind of you're you've put yourself naked and on display for this other person of course some of that anxiety or that fear is going to be shared back and forth and i think that that gives additional knowledge to the reader as far as why this this relationship with the intensity that it has is not necessarily insane there are two people from very different backgrounds who want very different things certainly but ultimately there is that piece of them in the inside that wants to be understood within a context that is preferable to them Mm -hmm. but i think that the major difference between them in that in that sense is the fact that they are it's it's in in the methods in which they are willing to approach getting what it is they want. Fernessi is insanely self-destructive and mm-hmm. absolutely willing to just burn everything that she has and that she's worked for to achieve whatever ends she's working towards whereas Brock on the other hand is willing to destroy everything around him uh to get what he wants so long as it doesn't impact him. Um so it's it's it really lends to the dynamic between those two in that, you know, they're essentially the same, they're working at the same thing, but in opposite ways and still managing to constantly come back into each other's orbits. Yeah. Which God, when that happens at this, I can't even, um, yeah. Yeah. I also love the, the depiction of a government cover up in process when they notice that Furnessy has gone um, on 277, it says, When news of Frenessi's escape from prep reached back in the great marble plexus, Brock went right around the bend, flew back to L.A., came storming into the fortress at Westwood with his out-of-control mind hard on, and for a brief time acted like a terrorist holding the place hostage. Nobody knew anything. At that point, they were all running around trying to manage the public relations over time arising from his success at College of the Surf. All the files on the 24 frames per second film collective, including Frenessi's, seemed to be temporarily out of the building. The case was no longer Brock's, and he couldn't find out whose it was. By the time he might have, he'd driven past self-exhaustion, adrift in the unsleeping, cockless iterations of some hotel near the airport, where men in wrinkled suits, jet-lagged and aimless, populated the corridors and the uproar in the sky never took a break. Like, just that depiction of sort of the government wheels are in motion of like, oh, someone's escaped, someone could talk about what actually went down, get rid of everything. Get rid of every piece of evidence possible that if she was to tell the, you know, the media about what happened, we would have no, you know, nothing from our end could be proved through, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests decades from now. Yeah. Or anything like that. It's, It's just one of these small bits that Pinchon throws in there that constantly shows the the knowledge that he has and the fact that he gets how these wheels turn um and and yeah it's just it's it's that whole paragraph is amazing too because he gets on that plane and has the interaction with the child where oh the, the, god the, the concept that and again looking at him as potential uh, potentially you know being a sex abuse survivor that would explain why the one time we've seen him fluster this entire book is, is when it is yeah, is when it, he's accused of it by yeah. a child and, like, cannot muster up the ability to say anything to them. Yeah, and then in a very straightforward, uh, again, psychoanalytic approach of reading this section. I mean, it's only a paragraph after we get his reflections on sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's it's right there. Like, it, it's, turn around and there's the there's the kid accusing him. So there's that there's that sense of guilt that's often associated as well. Yeah, completely. 
and then yeah, we we hear about. I, I don't I don't appreciate the first mention of Wisconsin in a Pinchon book that we've read so far. My my state <laughs> being where Brock went to go have his jerk off cabin as he couldn't find you know Frenessy or anything similar to her. If it, if it helps, I think this is a, an apartment on Washington or sorry in, on Wisconsin Street in Washington D.C. I'd hope so. That's true. It does say out on Wisconsin in the in the Selwyn tube flicker. Yeah. So I think Will's right. It is. I don't think I don't think the Wisconsin is Wisconsin proper. Just yeah. That paragraph starts in Washington again. Okay. Thank explain. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're safe. All right. Your state is safe. <laughs> I don't want him here. I don't want him here. Literally, I don't want him here. Metaphorically, <laughs> spiritually. In fact, it's bad enough that he's on our street in Washington D.C. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah we get we get some more ideas about his obsession where he says around the full moon where he'd find himself heading on dupont circle and other gathering spots of the young and uncritical trying to mingle with the hippies blacks and drug abusers to put up as sportingly as he could with their music and closeness looking for strong slender legs a fine rain of hair with luck fatally those eyes of pacific blue hoping in light cooperative enough to find a girl to project Furnessy's ghost onto, someone who'd hand him a flower, offer a joint, groovy, agree to be led back here to the cum-stained couch and be taken. And, and then it cuts. And again, this is another case where we're getting those interjections from whatever person is watching this TV show, as we kind of talked about it last week, where someone mentions giving him a joint, and then whoever that narrator is goes, ah, groovy, they're going to smoke yeah. weed. Yeah. But it's, it's a very just, Dukes of Hazard kind of thing. That's what it makes me. Yeah, think very of. true. And ju- just yeah, it's it, it's. I hate the man, and none of this gives me any sympathy for it. But it is interesting to see him fall down into this descent of obsession. That is, you know, it's it's very true. A lot of people do this, uh, not to the same destructive degree that Brock is capable of, but just that obsession of of losing somebody that you were pretending not to care about, which in, you know, more germane relationships may have been the reason why it ended, but that he's desperately trying to tell himself he doesn't care about. And yet here he is. He can't stop trying to find her wherever he is. Yeah. It's really like it has consumed him at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So do we want to talk about Fernessi? Well, so I, I, before we, before we jump off of uh, Brock's perspective, I guess mm-hmm. I did want to connect the the way that this that that brought us right to the edge of the whole kick loose section. I think it's very telling the way that Brock has clearly conceptualized all of these hippies uh, as as these weak willed individuals um, who who really just desire to be put in under control including Frenesi, especially Frenesi, um with essentially this weird image of him having realized that he couldn't stop laughing at one moment mm-hmm. until his nausea saved him i think his uh i i think it's really telling that it's it's this symbol of him laughing that is consuming him, that is the thing that terrifies him about his own psyche. Because that is... 
this is not going sorry my brain is not forming coherent lines of thought um but it goes into the direction of uh it's called the rupa jhana it's a buddhist concept of uh the way that when you are on the path of enlightenment you are controlling successive aspects of your mind in greater and greater detail and the one of the first stages of that is being able to focus exclusively on joy and pain and to bring those sensations as like self-reinforcing concepts within yourself i think it's really telling that he has conceptualized the entire world as not having enough control over it mm -hmm. in what seems to be because he couldn't stop laughing one day because he had so much control over his own mind that he was able to get to this taste of freedom and he just couldn't handle it yeah well i i i think you're you're absolutely right there and i think it's it's also interesting to your point about control that right after that he expresses his concern about his colleagues running off and you know doing these these psychedelic mushroom branches or the appearance of pink floyd and Jimi hendrix Jimi paraphernalia hendrix. around that it, it seems like he could almost understand that in another life if he didn't have that control he would be one of those people which also explains that sort of attraction to what he sees as fatal like Fernessi's, you know attracted to him which is fatal to the movement she comes from and he is attracted to that movement probably in a way that there's a lot of stuff going on with that psychologically but something something tells me that part of the attraction there too is that idea that you know it, it can feel good to just not hold so tightly to everything like that's an exhausting thing to mm. put on yourself day after day after day and that obviously represents sort of people who have done that and just this one moment where he bursts out laughing uncontrollably is the closest he's gotten to that and he's he's also sort of terrified of it repeating um weirdly enough that section reminded me of the comedian and watchman like the the comedian and brock are not entirely different as far no. as as far as their political actions their political views i think the comedian is just what happens if brock fond let himself laugh however long it took and then just kept laughing because he realized what a joke everything was there's a very interesting comparative psychology, you know, psychology to put in place between those two particular characters. That's an that's an interesting angle to look at. I I'm going to be thinking about that for a yeah. while probably cuz that's yeah. I think you're onto something there. If you haven't read Watchmen, thank you for um, saying read. Don't, watch, don't watch Watchmen. The movie. Please don't watch the movie. <laughs> that freaking movie blows. Um the show was pretty good. <laughs> The show was the actually movie. very good. The movie, God, the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Read, not... read the original graphic novel. Don't watch the Zack Snyder movie. The HBO series is actually pretty solid. Um, yeah. yeah. As is the Tom King Rorschach miniseries that came out a couple years ago. That's a very interesting addition to that universe. But one of the best written graphic novels of all time, if not the oh, best sure. written graphic for novel sure. of all time. So yeah, I think that brings us directly into Fernessi. I can't, I can't filibuster any longer. Yeah, it was going to happen. Um, yeah, so from there we transition to, to Fernessi, and we get an incredibly sad statement where her first thought after DL left from the restaurant was just to go back to, to prep. 
Like that's literally the first thought that she had. Yeah. Um, which, Oh God. And instead she, she goes and meets Zoid. Um, we get, we get a, a good early impression of Zoid. Love that he has a Zappa mustache. Yeah. Um, and love that he's wearing yellow shooting glasses all the time. <laughs> I, Wire rim too. I, I hate that that gives off the image of Steven Seagal. Oh god, it does. <laughs> oh now, uh, now I'm imagining like the horrible bastard child of Zappa and Steven Seagal. <laughs> oh boy, that's that might, my retinas. That might be what Zoe is. <laughs> and um, I gotta gotta love Zoe's horrible choice of set. What starting with Louie Louie and then going into Wooly Bully? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really obvious it's a very obvious choice <laughs> i do love the subtle about it no not at all yeah. nor is nor is there anything subtle about his his uh his original that he goes into which with with hindsight of him wanting to do covers it's maybe stick to covers because that original that he sings i don't know i yeah I, <laughs> or get someone else to write the lyrics for you yeah <laughs> He needs a ghostwriter. He needs a Bernie Taupin. That's, uh, yeah. Um, you don't. You don't think that it's a truly effective ballad when he starts singing about this hot tomato looking mighty sweet. I, I mean, I would you be seduced, Will? I mean, I my my armor would have a chink in it. Mm. <laughs> I, I do love uh, these couple of paragraphs on page 280, where it says, In the year that had elapsed, Vernessi had met and married Zoid and given birth to Prairie. All in a year. Crazy. Um, none of which Brock had known about. None of which she volunteered when at last they were face to face again. The year before, in Las Suegras, standing at the edge of his gas station apron, watching DL and the Camaro ascend to the freeway and vanish, rolling blind in her own future, Vernessi had considered calling Brock, going back into prep. There was no way back to 24 FPS or or to the person she'd been. Beyond any way to clear it, she had set up Weed's murder and was in the federal law enforcement files now and forever. Shared with every last amateur cop groupie in the land listed as a species her parents had taught her to despise. A cooperative person. Yeah, it's just talking about like the destruction of a human being over the past couple of chapters. It's really summed up in that last sentence of that paragraph. Yeah. So yeah. I have a, I have a question for everyone at that point. Go for it. Literally at the end of that paragraph, we have this return to part of what I think is uh, part of what make, made that dream sequence earlier very confusing for the reader, I think, is the fact that there's this intersection of it with this motif of Brock and Fernesi having this weird ability to actually like project themselves toward one another. And yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm curious how much of that you, you, you folks read as a literal, like, kind of a surrealist thing of here are these characters actually communicating and how much of it is just straightforward projection of their own personalities. I I did not read it as a literal ability to astral project, but rather the fact that she had gotten to know Brock so well, she just knew what he would be thinking or what he would be saying to her if he was watching yeah. this this thing play out that it's what you want isn't it the dark apparition of brock von questioned her from continental distance forever isn't that supposed to be as romantic as it gets but well, we can provide you with forever no sweat 
Like, I, th- I think that that's her understanding what she can get out of Brock if she gives into it, and that comes from an understanding of just spending that much time with him. I read that more as she just knows him well enough that she she would know what he would say in that instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's this probably... is the, This is developed later, but I do think there's an element of, like, almost stalking to their relationship, oh, yeah. um, oh, where she's sure, doing sure. stuff... She's doing stuff so that um, he will probably know where she is. And he's doing he's going out of his way when he can to be near her and stuff, um, which isn't straight up stalking and it's mutual stalking. So it's kind of cancels itself out. That being said, there is an aspect of like, you know, romantic obsession. Mm-hmm. Well, and to expand on that, Luke, there is a not to jump too far ahead, but there's a scene where you can read it as Brock literally being in her bedroom or as this astral projection thing, I think there's a greater case to be made that he's literally there and is trying to convince her to come back through whatever subtle manipulation he can provide while she's asleep. In that in that sense that she was whispering sweet everythings to him in that earlier scene, and now he's doing the exact same, but needs her to come of her own volition, at least at first. So I, I, I think you're right, that there is a stalking and obsession element to it. Yeah, my, my first time through this chapter, you know, th- there's the scene early on, or earlier on, when Brock is basically fantasizing that Frenesi's there. And then you have this scene where Frenesi fantasizing is not the right frame. But uh, she, she is probably uh, just kind of imagining his perspective. But but something about that third occasion and the way that it links in to the first two really feels like it is supposed to recontextualize them. And that, that's kind of the conclusion I got at mm-hmm. the end of my revisiting of this chapter prior to the recording. And I, I don't know what to draw from that, you know. I, 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 but it does remind me of... Uh, of just in general, the way that cinematography is alluded to in the writing of this book, because mm-hmm. it's very much the kind of thing where you can imagine they've literally exposed two frames on top of each other. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, and then to get to Luke's earlier comment, like after this weird set is played by Zoid and the Corvairs, we get the the notice that Brock visits L.A. and one of the things on his list is to track down Frenessi. Um, and it turns out that Frenessi has gone to, to Gordita Beach where she's moved into the house. And I do I do enjoy the the brief kind of poetic time skipping that Pinchon does on 282 where he says she moved into the house at Gordita Beach as Zoid's chick, then Zoid's old lady. Just that that very simple one sentence sort mm-hmm. of description of of how time is passing and how people are perceiving the two of them. And mixed with the fact that now we know this entire time She's just been pining for Brock from afar and isn't, you know, really sold into this into this institution of marriage necessarily, but has just done it because it's what's in front of her. It's again, man, there's so much heartbreaking stuff in these these five or six chapters here. It's it's hard. It really is. Yeah, that that one paragraph that you started to read out there, it just is so much of Frenesi trying to handle the way that she's kind of on the run Mm -hmm. and the way that she has decided that the best way for her to stay on the run is to just bury herself inside of this ideal you know in quotes idealized uh 
you know, relationship with Zoid where she gets she gets to ignore all of these things that she feels guilty for. And at the same time, she does actually genuinely get to avoid dealing with the crazy shit that comes out of, you know, Brock pursuing her for a short period. Mm-hmm. And where we end up there where, before she re- reestablishes contact with him, it's just horribly heartbreaking because it is such a clear picture of the kinds of, like, uh, self-destructive lines of depression that people go through when they've actually done horrible things to people that they actually do care about and betrayed themselves on a very deep level while still trying their best. Yeah, she is she is trying. <laughs> That's for sure. Um I do enjoy this is a case where I think Pinchon had some insight into the music business. The oh, brief the, the contract the, negotiations. <laughs> the brief history yeah. of of like this idea that a new sound comes along and then the music business completely loses its mind and does everything they possibly can to squeeze every single dollar out of it while also spending an inordinate amount of money and putting faith into tastemakers who have no clue what they're talking about, and in this case are literally children who are just whacked out of their mind on LSD, was a great brief moment of levity in an otherwise horrifying chapter. It's also, it's weirdly prescient, too, because keep in mind this book was written in 1990, and a year after this is when we have Nirvana, and this whole thing cycles over again where you have the music industry and all the record labels are scrambling to find the next Nirvana. And this exact thing is what comes about as a result. Yeah. Like all it, of the, you know, just like, let's trust these people and let's listen to what these people say. And we'll sign this band and this band. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's history cycling over again. Completely. And it's, it's not even something that just happened in the nineties. It happened in the nineties. It also happened in the two thousands with the rock revival out of New York. The garage rock revival. And yeah. Yep. It, it also happened with the like punk to, to, to pop punk explosion when all of those bands quote unquote sold out yep. and you know, all of the massive buying up of perceived talent that happened there. This is something that just actually happens. And it, it's something where you can look at that and be like, what, what, are, what do they have, children running these record labels? What are they doing? Why are you <laughs> signing this particular band for this amount of money? And in this case, there are actually children <laughs> running these, <laughs> these record labels. <laughs> so we then learn that when Fernessi starts, you know, actually showing that she's pregnant and is, is getting closer to delivering the baby, Fernessi's mom swoops in and offers for Frenessi to come back to their their house and what there's once again a plea to returning to that state of childlike bliss and that um Frenessi is is offered the chance to go back to her childhood bedroom to sort of carry this pregnancy forward and then eventually raise her child which she accepts so again this is a repeating theme through this chapter which is great and there's an interesting uh interplay between her and Zoid here where Zoid almost runs over Fernessi and her mother. Because um, the car put itself in drive. Because the car put itself in drive, which he defends as there was an actual recall for this, and I showed you the paperwork. Like, I can just imagine that argument happening, and as soon as that recall paperwork showed up, he just took it to Fernessi. He's like, see, I told you I'm yeah, not crazy. Yeah. It's I was not trying to run over your mother. It's another... Uh, Brief moment of, of fun there. 
and poking fun at you know in-law dynamics but there's there's an interesting line in here where zoid tells frenessi that all she was looking for was a cover and that was why they're together how did we interpret that statement because that statement could be interpreted in a number of ways which which line is it what page is it on it's on 281 to 282 at least in my edition um where it says specifically that's what made her fall in love at first sight very inquired years later when zoid told her well that and my good looks said zoid but when everything was coming apart he'd also screamed at Fernessi. it could have been anybody scott the two junky saxophone players all he was looking for was some quick cover the baby slept on silently in the other room. Fernessi had been watching Zoid for weeks as he clumsily pieced the story together. She could have helped, but was hoping by then naively that he'd taken a false turn, come out with an opinion where she'd look a little better, caring less about his opinion. Finally, then about an, another mother, or about her mother's. Zoid, anyway, didn't oblige, just kept stumbling and bullying, missing details without getting it, but basically getting it mercilessly right. Brock Weed. Brock's return, all of it, allowing her no pathways to safety. The The reason I wanted to ask your guys' opinion on that, and as I was saying um, in brief break, like it isn't that I necessarily subscribe to this reading or that I necessarily think that this could be the correct reading, but there is an element to that interaction and that quote that does get to the idea that there is a possibility that Prairie is not Zoid's child. Um Yes, it, it makes sense that Prairie would be looking to kind of disappear after everything that happened with the Republic of Rock and Roll. And yes, it's possible that that's all this quote is referring to. That's certainly sort of the most obvious reading. But I think there's another aspect of if she was just looking to hide out somewhere, that doesn't necessarily have to be a man in this band. And if we're looking at the quick sequence of events from DL dropping her off, you know, Fernessi immediately meeting Zoid in the next town over, the two of them immediately moving in together, getting married, and then, you know, her giving birth all within a year. There is a, an additional reading there where Zoid is either worried that Prairie is not actually his child and that she may be pregnant by, by Brock just bef- like just conceived just before they met, and she needed cover for someone else to be the father. And that's what it is i I guess i wanted to get your thoughts on that section there is this just pinchon talking about trying to escape what happened and hope that zoid never figures out what what do we think i i think it i think in the larger picture it's it's the latter it's that she's she doesn't want zoid to know about everything that came before him whether or not, I think ultimately, like if you if you really want to boil it all down, whether or not Zoid is biologically Prairie's father, he certainly filled the role. True. And so it, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, he's her. He is her dad. Yeah. Um. But I think ultimately, with with that particular section that you're talking about, I think it's it's. It's hard to, yeah, I, I don't think it's fair to nail down one specific way of interpreting that. I mm-hmm. think it's, it really is, is one of the, the more open-ended instances of, of how this could be analyzed. I think ultimately what it really is more about is just 
is is um prairie trying to get away from her past not prairie sorry for um and and just i think that in her mind the the less zoid knows about everything before him the better for her the better for him the better for prairie it doesn't have to come up it doesn't have to be worried about it doesn't have to be constantly this this lingering reminder of of everything awful that happened like this is her way to kind of start blank start over start fresh and get past that mm-hmm. now you there is certainly an argument to be made because of the way like you were saying the way that the um the timeline is structured there is a possibility that she even could have known that she was pregnant right with with Brock's child and took steps to keep him from knowing that which would also make sense because I think she knows what Brock is capable of and what he would do if he found out that he had a child out there. Mm-hmm. So really it could be either one. If if I'm being forced to kind of pick one or the other, I think it's more <laughs> of her just wanting to get away from the past that haunts her and, and start somewhere new. Right. I The, the I main aspects of it that make me consider it is the use of the phrase you're looking for cover, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. And then also the earlier line about Barack's relationship to, to each child when it was talking about him, you know, having sex, the, the quote that will read out earlier. I don't think it's, it's Brock's. I don't think Prairie is Brock's child. I think that that would, that'd be, that's too much of a, I think that'd be too much, um, too soap opera. Um, not, well, I, this I is a TV show book, though. Yeah, yeah. I but I I think it'd be more. It's not really. It's not stated or implied, really. I I mean, in my opinion, I don't. I don't. It's not like not. I mean, it's it's not. It's neither. It's not denied either. Um, which I do think is also important. But I I I I think it's just. It, I think it's you know. Mm-hmm. If there was a question of paternity, I think Zoid would bring it up during their fights, and I think it would be stated. That's fair. That's definitely a good point. So I actually, um, I don't think that, you know, we're supposed to believe that Prairie is secretly Brock's child. But I do think that there's a, a, enough ambiguity surrounding that, and there's enough doubt in Zoid at that point that I think that that might be the motivation for him taking that quarter tab of acid before Prairie's born. I think that you see him taking acid with his bandmates like they used to back in the good old days, and, you know, that none of them are having a, a, a unified trip of any form, but he in particular is every time just thinking about Fernese and thinking about her past and... I think it's pretty heavily implied the the lies that she told him or the things that she left out uh, of her history when they first got together and that those things are sticking with him to the extent that he's just like right before Prairie's born. He's like, okay, you know what? She might be my kid. She might not be. Let's take a little bit of LSD. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll see that it, that she's really mine because LSD lets you see those kinds of things. Or mm-hmm. maybe maybe even if it's not my kid, I'll be able to see my own immortality, you know, coming back to kind of confirming Hector's theory about him from way earlier in the book. Yeah. Right. But yeah. 
I think that that whether it whether he ever phrased it to himself of she might not be mine, she might be this prosecutor's. It seems to have, you know, been in the milieu of milieu of things that he was concerned about. Yeah, and this is, and again, this is not necessarily me saying that I subscribe to it, but just that this is an interesting thing that came up while I was reading it, and is certainly something to to think about. Um, if any of our listeners have theories or additional thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Um, and it's going to be something that I pay attention to as we continue on, certainly. Speaking of the the taking a, a quarter tab of acid, what did we think about the the birth scene and and Zoid's reaction to to seeing his daughter for the first time? Well, I want a Paisley Nehru shirt now. <laughs> there <laughs> Thank you go. You. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> uh, beyond that, no, I, I I think it's actually a very touching moment in this very mm. dark book or very dark chapter of this very dark book. Uh, you know, I think that there is. As much as uh, people like Michael S. Judge take uh, Pynchon's attitude towards LSD to be entirely negative, and I think that there's a lot of negativity there, uh, this this is him kind of showing there are a re- there are reasons that people fell in love with this and believed that it would save society in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to ask Cody specifically, not that I believe you've taken acid before, you know, one of your your children was born, but as the only parent on Buckle the show, up, that, here comes a story <laughs> that I believe. I was curious <laughs> if that idea of like this baby knows me, or like just something in the way the child is looking at the parent rings mm-hmm. true to you, because obviously Pinchon had had a child at this point in history, so he could be pulling on real experiences. Again, not saying that he took a quarter of a tab of acid before <laughs> before his son was born, but I, yeah. I thought it was an interesting way to to describe a, a parent seeing their child for the first it's, time. Yeah, no, so actually this that scene uh, definitely hit pretty close to home, not because of the acid part, um, but exactly for the reasons you just said. Like, there is a, it, this is going to sound really, uh, you know, cheesy and corny, but it, there really is a, a weird transitional moment that happens, I think, when, when a child is born. I, I can't say for everybody. I can certainly say from my experience, and my wife will, will attest to it as well. Like, she's routinely mentioned that when our son was born, um, there was a like a noticeable flip in in me from the moment before and the moment after um and it's it's a it, it's a almost a very surreal feeling and i can see how adding lsd into that mix would make for an interesting experience <laughs> but it's it's surreal enough on its own like you're witnessing a a living breathing creature that is is coming into the world for the first time that is part of you, like in a very physical and literal sense is a part of you and that you are going to now be on this, this journey with for the rest of your life. And it's, it's a really difficult thing to explain, but it it is absolutely a very, uh, visceral feeling of transition that that occurred for me when my son was born, and it really truly kind of happened again when my daughter was born as well. Um, it's I, I I really don't know how to describe it other than 
it is, yeah, it's a, it's an incredibly surreal moment. Um, that being said, yeah, I definitely was not on acid at that time. <laughs> the only time I've ever done acid was not of my own volition and it was therefore the last time I ever did it. So that's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I will say for a fun little side story, I had a, a one of the bands I was in in college was with my brother-in-law and a friend of ours uh, who was, who went to the same college as my wife. Um, I showed up at my mother-in-law's house for band practice. We had this little like shed that we practiced in um, just outside of where the house is. And our, our bass player is just the three of us, myself, my brother-in-law and, and our bass player uh, is outside, just outside the shed, like scooting around in the dirt, like just like taking these real tiny, like scooty steps. And I'm walking up, to the shit my brother-in-law's like yeah we can't practice today graham took acid and he thinks he's a pencil so he's writing something out <laughs> in the dirt right now so we just sat there and watched him and it was <laughs> it was a great time we didn't do any practicing but we had a great time that day he thinks he's a pencil it was something else amazing i've met somebody named pencil before in zambia really yeah, yeah I, also met somebody, I also met somebody named uh, Judgmental. Those wow. were very good names. Yeah. If there isn't a non-binary person out there named Pencil, um, someone needs to really get on that. Pencil's good. Like, Judgmental, though, that's setting you up. Like That is. That's that a is. really <laughs> you You, you got to hope to become, like, a librarian mm-hmm. or obviously a judge. Yeah. Or something totally the opposite that whenever someone asks you, you can be like, my name doesn't define me. <laughs> as as a comedic uh, prank to play on your partner, if you thought they were judgmental, if either the, yeah. the, the husband or wife of that couple was like, you know, my partner is so judgmental. I'm going to name our kid judgmental. And then every time they have to look at our kid, they got to think about that. <laughs> remember what they did. <laughs> So just to just to confirm, Cody, to, as, mm-hmm. as a follow up to your, uh, dis, your your painfully frank discussions of becoming a father, you, you're saying you wouldn't go back and take acid. No, it oh. has. <laughs> I know <laughs> what I had. A, I had such like oh, I can't. Eat. It was a terrible experience. Like, yeah, no, that absolute that horrible. horrible. Yeah. So. That was a real interesting time in my life. So after uh, the birth happens, uh, Fernessi does take the baby home to. Was someone going to say something? I called. No? Sorry. Oh, okay. Um, after the birth happens, Fernessi does take Prairie back to her mother's house, and we are treated to treated one of treated. Uh, I'm sorry. We are put through. Um, <laughs> One of the most heart-wrenching descriptions of postpartum depression that I think I've ever read in any book, not that that's a common occurrence in what I read. Um, And this was one, I remarked about this to Cody earlier when we were talking about the chapter, and that, like, I I have to assume that Pinchon either maybe talked to his his wife if she experienced something similar uh, after their child was born, or if he just talked to other women about what experiencing postpartum depression was, because it feels far too in depth of an analysis for him to just be making that up off the top of his not head. Not only, not only in depth. It's there is such a sympathetic tone that is placed yeah. into that description that I don't. I, I think 
a lot of other writers would have just described it in a very clinical way mm-hmm. and in a, a very, I don't want to say inhuman or dehumanizing way, but like in a, it just in a cold and kind of, you know, clinical way. Like, but he does the, there is such a, an understanding right. and a, and a sympathy that this, this section is written with it. It, it makes it, it hits so much harder as a result. Especially with the fact that her mother immediately seems to recognize what's happening and is doing everything she can mm-hmm. to try and fight back against that. But it's just, it's so, it's so all-consuming for Frenessi that she's worried about the child's safety, even. Um, which is, of course, why she calls their, their, you know, her, I believe, ex-husband? They don't yeah. seem to be together. Doesn't, um, yeah. Yeah. It's not explicitly stated, but it certainly seems like they are not no longer married or never, right. maybe even not weren't. I don't know. No, like, they, don't, not, they don't live together. Um, they definitely yeah. don't live together. Yeah. And he, he is shown as patting her on the, on the butt, I think, which does maybe signify a level of friendliness, uh, even, even if it's non-sexual, but a level of familiarity uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I think that they're still on good terms, but I don't think that they're together. Yeah. And, if it seems like we're skipping over a giant chunk of this chapter, because it is a lot of pages, it's just it, to do it justice. I feel like you'd almost have to just read out the entire thing, but it is an incredible blend of just the way that he again goes through time, the way that he applies that, that care to the subject and the, the sympathetic eye to it. And it's, it's just devastating to, to read or listen to however way you're consuming these books and just, to think about the reality of that, that that is something that a lot, if not a majority of women go through after they give birth. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's painful to read. Well, and it's something too that like, not only at the time that in the story that this play takes place, but at the time that the book was published, postpartum depression was not a, it's not that it wasn't understood well. I, it wasn't really taken very seriously, I don't think, right. by by a lot of society. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, kind of written off and dismissed, and and that's a, it's a terrible thing to have done, you know, because it is a very real thing, and it it has very serious uh, side effects and and impact on not just the 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 woman who is suffering from it, but the people, you know, the the other the kid, the you know, their partner a lot of people are impacted by it and for it to have been written off for so long is just this, you know, post-birth blues kind of thing is, it's horrible. Yeah. And Pinchon remarks on that. He, he mentions the fact that there, there was no support uh, for, for women who were going through that in in that extended digression. Yeah. It's, it's almost like the kind of the, the mirror of that, that, that uh, kind of like how, you know, I mentioned earlier, LSD is framed usually as kind of this uh, pseudo subversive element in the books. In this case, up until this point, there's been a lot of making fun of self-help. There's been a lot of making fun of like, you know, calling a hotline and talking to somebody. It's like, oh, that's going to solve your problems. But we see here that like, yeah, there's a really big positive aspect to those things that in general society mocks it gave people some place to go when they were dealing with these kinds of issues like postpartum depression, things that really can't actually be like treated, treated even by modern 
uh, psychiatry in the best of cases. These are just the kinds of things that you just kind of need social support for. There's nothing Mm -hmm. else to it. And it comes from these otherwise uh, what's positioned as laughable aspects of 80s culture. Right. Well, and speaking of social support, the most devastating part about it is that Zoid is nowhere to be found. And before Hubble Gates shows up, there is that brief conversation between um, her and um, and Hubble, her being Prinessi's mother, whose name is escaping me at the time. Sasha. Um, Sasha, where she admits the fact that Zoid just just fucking disappeared. Like after after Prairie was born, like yep. he's just he's just not around. Which, if we're looking at a conspiracy angle, a the level of hatred coming out of the postpartum depression, and b Zoid's disappearance lends potentially additional credence to. The alternative parentage. Again, I'm not saying I believe it, but there <laughs> there would be a thematic underpinning there for um, it. I think it could point to the opposite, honestly, because I think it could it could signify that Frenessi was actually into Zoid and wasn't using Zoid necessarily. Um, and then because their their argument on 282 is, you know, Prairie's already alive. She's sleeping in or whatever that argument is that you quoted from. Mm-hmm. Prairie is sleeping in the other rooms. The Prairie's already alive. So this is, you know, a month or two, three, however many months down the road after Zoid has disappeared. Um, So it could just be an example of how Zoid is just not a very good person. And Zoid maybe showed how um, unreliable he is, um, but only after Prairie was born, uh, which then would lead credence to the fact that they actually maybe did have something and then Zoid fucked it up. Um, Yeah, that's also true. It's like those, you know, like those, I mean, it's, I, I'm on Reddit too much, but it's like those relationship <laughs> subreddits where like you're only getting one half of the story, you know? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. originally we only get Zoid's half and then, but it, then it turns out, you know, Zoid was an absentee father, like right after, right when Frenessi was struggling the most, um, which can really, you know, I, I get that Frenessi, I think, has help with Prairie uh, in the form of her mother. But that's still going to, you're still going to resent the person who fathered your child and then disappeared. So, yeah, very, very true. Which, God, that makes that argument even worse that he's yelling at her when she's in the depths of mm-hmm. that depression. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I think also it could be that, and, and this is in no way defending what Zoid did, but I, I think given his, um, the way he feels that he's viewed by Frenessi and her, and her mom, the fact that he just thinks none of them really care about him, coupled with the, the sort of I, I, he didn't I don't think he got the response he wanted from taking acid and watching his child be born I think may have just been too much for him and just caused him to say you know kind of get this idea of like well no one wants me anyways and put himself before the people who need him at that time um, if I had to look for a reason for him leaving it could be that um, regardless it was you know terrible thing for him to have done um but yeah i don't know yeah I, I see this whole kind of section as a, a little too infused with uh Fernese's depression to actually draw any conclusions of reality from it mm. like it, it it feels very much like all of the evidence that you can pull out of it that that would support that uh cons- as you phrased the conspiratorial angle 
uh, I think can be flipped around as essentially just bi- big just uh, <laughs> just like you know she spent the last years of her life hyper fixated on her own betrayal of her ideals she's mm-hmm. she spent the last at this point probably you know at least uh, nine months of her life focused on how she's trying to like dissolve herself into Zoid's shadow this person who doesn't cast a very tall shadow when she was a leader of a movement when she is this person who has all of these things in her mind and she has spent these years just stewing in guilt and then you have postpartum depression on top of all of those very real aspects of normal major depression and you have her trying to fit together why Zoid isn't here why she's seeing Brock at night why she hates this child and what does she hate it because this child is a symbol of her settling in some way is it a symbol of her past is it a symbol of her betrayal is it a symbol of just her being a weak fragile person who 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 is susceptible to the same things that everyone else is whether it's you know a, a, a maternal drive or it's sexuality with brock or it's just the the knowledge that she can't keep it all up and she needs to hide somewhere for a while whatever it is she's just at her wit's end and all her brain can do is put these things together in different orders and we're seeing that over and over again yeah true yeah um starting on page 287 there's another quote in here that i it's well i guess it really more starts on 286 but um Man, it's just another quote that really got to me. Uh, It was in those hours of hallucinating and defeat that Furnessy had felt brought closer to her, more necessary than ever, with his own private horrors further unfolded into an ideology of the mortal and uncontinued self Brock came to visit, and strangely to comfort in the half-lit hallways of the night, leaning darkly in above her like any of the sleek raptors that decorate fascist architecture, whispering, This is just how they want you. An animal, a bitch with swollen udders lying in the dirt, Blank face, surrendered, reduced to this meat, these smells. Taken down, she understood, from all the silver and light she'd known and been. Brought back to the world like silver recalled grain by grain from the invisible to form images of what then went on to grow old. Go away, get broken, internated. She'd been privileged to live outside of time, to enter and leave at will. Looting and manipulating, weightless and visible. Now time had claimed her again, put her under house arrest, taken her passport away. Only an animal with a full set of pain receptors, after all. I think that really gets to some of the stuff you're talking about, Will, but I, I also love the the description of Brock as, um, like, any of the sleek raptors that decorate fascist architecture. What just an amazing use of imagery there to describe yeah. that character and what he's doing in that scene. Um, and how it is really... Brock, who's who's also tormenting her through all of this, whether or not you think he's literally in the room, you know, it, and the, the the stalking has gone to that level, or if you think that it's it's just what she's imagining, sort of figuratively, it's 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 so. I feel like I just keep repeating the same words, but it's just so emotionally heavy and it's so well written to depict to the reader what she's going through and what she's thinking about. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that Brock has consumed her this much that she's, he doesn't even have to be there for him to be there. 
and for him to continue to make his presence known and, and hammer down on her. Um, it's, I fucking hate it. I really fucking hate Brock so much. He's, he's the worst. Um, so yeah, Hubble shows up to try and help break through some of the log jam with her, with her postpartum depression. What did we think about his story about the, the motion picture unions that he tells her? I, first of all, I like I like Hub. I I think he's just he the way he's described as when he's you know he's taking Prairie with him, um, and just that kind of grandfatherly personality that he's exuding. Um, I I I love it, but I do also I really do like the this going back to um the unions like we were talking about earlier. Um, I don't remember what chapter it was, but we we touched on the um, the impact of the the Hollywood blacklist and um, how that was kind of the you could trace that back to the start kind of of what got the '80s to where it was. Mm-hmm. Um, there's I, I've I mentioned it. I think on Twitter a while back, I don't think I actually mentioned it on the episode, but there's a great video by Maggie Mae Fish where she talks, she talks about the, um, the Hollywood strikes and the blacklist and all that kind of, it's a great video. I'm going to put the link in the show description. Um, it's really a, a fascinating watch and, and depressing at the same time to see just how powerful the, the anti-union groups were and how much influence the government had into that side of of labor and um i think that this is an important part of of the chapter and of the book's kind of overall thematic arc of how the the government intervention especially into these unions in the in the 40s and the 50s and you can even probably trace it back farther than that um but it was essential in in sort of laying the groundwork to destabilize a lot of these counterculture movements, which is exactly the same processes that Brock was using of, you know, not necessarily tearing them down from the outside, but from getting inside, infiltrating them from the inside and causing this, this rot to form within there that would essentially lead to their collapse. And by doing that, not just with Brock and the story, but with the, the anti-union movements that was, that were put into place by the government, that allowed them to exert their control over a lot of these groups and then was essentially what laid the groundwork for Reagan to come in and and set up this hypercapitalism that really took off in the 80s and and that I feel like this what this book is really getting at is is a condemnation of that and how we got to that point and Hub's story his his backstory is pivotal in in understanding how we got from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I had something and it just left me when <laughs> Cody stopped talking. <laughs> Cody, keep I talking. I keep going. I mean, yeah, it's no, it again, the it, it's really disgusting. And, and to tie it all back to Reagan, I, I, I'm sure we talked about this earlier um, that Reagan was instrumental in this happening before he was the president. He was, I believe, the head of the Screen Actors Guild yeah. in the in the 50s and was integral in bringing it down from the inside out because he was part of the 
the group who were naming names and um, providing all this information that there was absolutely no basis in reality for what they were claiming. All these so-called communists and, and leftists that they were trying to out was nothing more than a smoke and mirrors act to essentially destabilize the unions and, and allow the, the Hollywood machine and, and even beyond Hollywood, it was, it went into almost every aspect of, of labor. Um, and it really the impacts of it are still felt today. Like unions have such a hard time getting started um, mm-hmm. And then once they are started, it's not easy for them to accomplish the goals that they want. They're fighting a huge, huge multi-headed beast. And that beast started to take shape and form around that 40s and 50s era when, when this union busting really started getting legs under it. Yeah. And I mean, this story is really what Frenessi needed to hear. Like all, all the stuff you're talking about is amazing for the thematic implications as it relates to Vineland as a whole, the, the the eras of history that Thomas Pinchon is talking about too, but this story that features people switching sides of a conflict many times, of understanding the kind of nebulous nature of how the world works and how movements start and get co-opted, get torn down, how other things show up sort of in contrast to that, as he's he's all laying out in this one labor battle that he was a part of, it's exactly what Frenessy has gone through. It's yep. it's you know what she went through is is more traumatic, certainly from a standpoint of its impact on her physical body and from her you know mental state and all of that. But you know he's really providing the comfort that he doesn't know she needs right now, especially with the story he's chosen to tell her. In that he just at one point had to realize like all this stuff is just. It's just labels. It's just different sides fighting against each other. I realized that at a certain point, I just had to let go of the anger that existed there, that the anger that I was allowing myself to feel towards one thing or another and just understand that I needed to 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 be my, you know, a good person who believes in the ideals that 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 I myself profess and believe in. And, you know, to allow myself to walk by those things, not so much be worried about what it's being applied to as long as i'm not doing damage to the world around me i will be okay whether i'm a part of the the cu or the uh iatse i can still be a good man regardless of where i'm at and that's exactly it's exactly what Furnessy would have needed to hear in that moment Mm -hmm. um and it leads to his closing quote in his his sort of long story um is honestly one of my favorite quotes that I've read in a book in a long time. His the way that he just sums this up. Um, it'd been over for a long time anyway, although we'd had to pretend otherwise. And what was it for? All those sets we lit, those exotic nightclub sets, the hotel rooms with neon outside, the passenger coaches with the rain against the windows. All of it just shadows, even if it's on safety lock and safety stock in some air conditioned vault. That's still all it is. I let the world slip away, made my shameful peace, joined the IA, retired soon as I could, sold off my only real fortune, my precious anger, for a lot of goddamn shadows. Just that line in particular, I sold off my only real fortune, my precious anger. Like, that's such an amazing, yeah. an amazing line um, that really stood out to me. And just, yeah, like, what a, what a freeing feeling it must be to get to that point where it's like, I don't, 
I've sold, it's been sold out for all of this. I'm so angry about it, but the only thing that I can do is, is make peace with it. And even if that feels like a betrayal of some kind, it's the only way that I'm going to be able to function and move forward. It's so beautiful. It is. And I, I think it also, this, you could tie this into the, the TV episode, um, nature of all of this. And this is that sort of, you know, finding a, a wise person who has gone through the experience that you've gone through and can share that experience and gives you that catharsis through their pain and suffering. Um, and which kind of ties the episode up with a nice night, no, not necessarily neat bow, but it kind of <laughs> brings everything full circle, um, mm-hmm. in a very episodic sort of way. Yeah. And I, I'd like to point out that part of, part of the, the depths of Frenesi's despair here have to be considered as the people who are around her. Zoid might not have been an actual revolutionary in any meaningful sense, but he truly believes in the, what he says he does. Uh-huh. He has nothing else. That's kind of his issue. Yeah. And uh, Sasha is Sasha. You know, she's kind of straightforwardly married to the movement more than anything else. It clearly came before being a, a mother, even. Uh-huh. And to have Hub come here and to pour out his heart in his apparently trademark monotonous way of <laughs> describing how he, just like his daughter, which he may or may not know at this point, just like his daughter got a little bit too infatuated with the mechanics of his of his work. He stopped caring about the actual the, the actual the 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 quote unquote revolution that you know he was play acting at, 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 at to to support what Sasha thought of him, and he you know got obsessed with the light and he got obsessed with the work and in the same way that Frenesi you know let herself get obsessed with being the viewpoint of of the revolution that uh, he he's still here you know the world doesn't end just because. You, you betrayed your ideals. You know, he can sit here and tell you the story and be okay with the fact that, you know, Sasha lost respect for him for basically because she misplaced it in the, in the first place. And in, in that way, you know, she can kind of frame herself at least on some level as, you know, being an inheritor of humanity, at least through her father. Yeah, that kind of brings us into the finale of this chapter. But before we get get into that, I want to hit on the the note Cody has here. I think I may have landed on why this book feels so Lynchian. What's up, Cody? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I've I have spent the last few weeks reading a uh, really pretty good book about uh, David Lynch's attempt to adapt Dune. I shouldn't say attempt; it happened. Um, well, it, I mean, it happened, <laughs> whether or not. <laughs> It ha- it exists. The thing is there, um, but and I would re- go check it out if you can. It's um, a masterpiece in disarray by Max Every. I think it just came out earlier this year, but it was pretty good. Anyways, um, so I've been on sort of a, a David Lynch re obsession. Like he never leaves my mind fully. He's one of my favorite <laughs> film directors, so it's it's always there. But I think what in reading this particular chapter, I was reminded a lot of. Um, his his sort of it, it's it's a theme that bubbles through a lot of his work, but specifically Blue Velvet, 
where there's a a sort of tendency for people to view, especially looking back on certain eras, uh, to view them through these kind of rose-colored glasses and see them as this kind of shiny, happy time where things are always great, but there's this there's always this real seedy, horrible, disturbing thing, evil darkness that that is lurking beneath the surface. And and I think Blue Velvet was really. If it wasn't necessary, I mean, I don't think Eraserhead was so much examining that part of things, but I think Blue Velvet was the the real encapsulation in the first time that he really started exploring this concept of this veneer that is placed over this evil and this darkness. And, and the 60s and the 80s are prime examples of that happening, where a lot of people were refusing to see the horrible things that were happening and kind of placating themselves with whatever the the pop culture was at the time or whatever the, the happy good stuff was you know whether it's tv or the uh escapism of of music or other forms of art at that time that weren't exploring a lot of the things going on um i think what really got me onto it when i was when i was thinking about how much i hate brock and how <laughs> he is this sort of pure evil who is abusing and objectifying and dehumanizing this woman who um, we're, we're kind of made to, I don't want to say we have to watch her suffer, but we, we do, we see the, the pain that she goes through and the horrible things that she goes through. And that's, that's uh, Dorothy and Frank Booth in, in blue velvet. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank is as evil as Brock, as solipsistic, as capable of, of pure violence and malevolence. And, um, He's, you know, just like the way he treats Frenessi is similar to how Frank Booth treats Dorothy throughout that film. Um, but more so that there's there's always this sort of darker side to the world that we're seeing. And whether we choose to acknowledge and, and see it and try to do something about it, or we put on our rose-colored glasses and just try to look past it and pretend that it's not there. I think that's... that. Once I made that Brock and, and Frank Booth connection, I, I realized like this is why if anyone was to adapt this book, it it would need to be Lynch. I think he he gets the themes and the the sort of um lurking horror that exists underneath society all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I think he gets that more so than a lot of other uh film directors. Um so yeah, I just I think that was finally what kind of pushed me over to where I was like, okay, I, I now I, I fully get why this is a, a perfect kind of Lynch vehicle. Yeah, I think you're absolutely. I mean, I think that that under underpins most of David Lynch's work to some extent. But Blue Velvet, I think, is you're. I think you're absolutely right, and that it, that is the most complete examination of that. I mean, even the opening credits of Blue Velvet go from examining this picture perfect neighborhood to all of the gross bugs that live underneath the ground as mm-hmm. a as a normal just course of the world existing. Um, yeah. What a, what a called shot chapter one for me to be like, Oh, this feels pretty Lynchian. And then <laughs> that's just continued to exist through this entire recording. And Seth from uh, waste mailing list also tweeted that he would think Lynch would be the best uh, person to adapt this book. Yeah. to. Yeah. I think, I think you're absolutely right. So this, this chapter sort of closes out with, Frenessi coming out of her her postpartum depression finally and sort of deciding that she's going to to take her father's advice she's going to put everything that happened behind her she's going to give up that 
that anger and look out for sort of a life of peace of just living with Zoid, you know, raising Prairie. And then who does she get pulled over by? But Brock Vond. And that destroys the entire thing. And then the chapter's just fucking over. <laughs> One thing I really like about the last paragraph is it is mentioned that, um, you know, Fernesi did want, uh, she wanted other things more perhaps, uh, but she wanted the state in final rubble. She wanted guns silent, tanks and bombs all melted down. Uh, which I do find is really interesting. You know, she's crying at the end and she's thinking about how she wants to kind of return to um, her mom and how they used to be. But I do think it's interesting and important that Pynchon mentions that she's still you know, has a countercultural view of the world and that she still aligns herself with the counterculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go back mm-hmm. to last week, um, when we talked about the Black Panthers some, you brought up the old Judas and the Black Messiah thing. And the the real life inspiration for the Lakeith Stanfield character, um, there's a there's a TV interview with him from I wanna say it's like late eighties, early nineties. I wanna say I could be wrong about that, but it's around that time period, the eighties and the nineties, where he's interviewed about his role in the Black Panthers and his role in the death of um whoever that was last week. Fred I, Hampton. I, I, Fred Hampton. And the guy gets, you know, kind of upset and he um he gets visibly upset and he talks about he basically talks about how he he was a Black Panther. He, he felt like he was a Black Panther, and he still feels like he he was a Black Panther. And that he does that make sense? Like he still viewed he viewed himself, and he still views himself as part of the um, that movement, even though he was mm-hmm. um, like you know one of the biggest reasons that that movement blew up. Um, yeah, it's it's a really haunting TV interview. They they if you watch Judas and the Black Messiah, they include a clip of it at the end, the one you're talking about, Luke, where he he basically says like he would tell his child that he was a part of the struggle, that he was a part of the movement. And with the, the, the underlying reality, like you're getting at Luke, it is, it's wild. And that is absolutely mirrored here in Frenessi. Um, I mean, even, even crazier about that interview is that not immediately afterwards, but within like the weeks afterwards, he committed what is assumed to be a suicide. Um, which it's yeah that kind of cognitive dissonance to exist within has to be a struggle. Well, do we want to go into funny parts? Are there? Are there... <laughs> yeah, I do have one. I do have okay. one. Um, let me find it real quick. One sec. It's um, it's the joke about Roscoe and the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Um. I used to really oh, love yeah. Lone Ranger growing up, and it's I used to watch it on TV with my little brother and my sister. Um, I haven't seen it even on TV in over 20 years, but I haven't had cable for much of that time. Anyways, um, it says that Brock wanted Roscoe to be a sort of less voluble Tonto, uh, which Tonto was already wasn't given a lot of lines, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that that joke's in there that if you do know the Lone Ranger, you know that Tonto wasn't given very many lines. And therefore, you know, Brock wants Roscoe to, that's basically just a multi layered joke saying that Brock wants Roscoe to be more or less silent. That's a good one. That is, yeah. I, I don't have any additional other than the ones we covered in the course of going through the chapters. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. Aside from those few 
pre pre mentioned moments like like the uh, you know ANR scene with <laughs> the Corvairs. The only actually funny part that isn't just like sitting there and like laughing wryly at oh what a silly person this Brock Vaughn is because you know you laugh or you cry. Um, the funniest part has to be this, just the framing of Hub like delivering this spiel as therapy. Oh I, yeah, I think that's very funny, and I think that uh, it is a it is a fun uh, question that he puts into your head of how effective would this be for literally anybody? Because clearly it helps for Nezi a little bit, and it makes sense why it would help her. But would it help anyone else with anything? I don't. I, I <laughs> right. seriously doubt it. Probably not. <laughs> it's just kind of a vaguely sad, very, you know, not necessarily normal in terms of what the actual occurrences are, but just a very normal story of people just not being who each other thought they were. But it's therapy. Yep. That's right. What about quotes? Who wants to go first? Will, how about you? I guess I will have to go with the uh, the section that we've already discussed a fair bit, um, but the, the paragraph after Prairie is Born that, uh, Kate, you read the first sentence of um, what no one else acknowledged. What no one acknowledged, certainly not Zoid in his cheery haze of paternity, cer less certainly Sasha, was how deeply, for an unbearable day and then the weekend, Frenesi was depressed. No amnesia, no kind leeching bath of time would ever take from her memories of descent to cold regions of hatred for the tiny life, raw, parasitic, using her body through the wearying months and now looking, or now still looking to control her. There were no talk shows back then in those days, no self-help networks or toll-free numbers to learn anything from or ask for help. She didn't, so surrendered to her dark fall, even though she needed help. The baby went along on its own program, robbing her of milk and sleep, acknowledging her only as a host. Where was the clean new soul, the true love, her own promised leap into grown-up reality? She felt betrayed, emptied out, watching herself, this beaten animal, only just hanging on, waiting for everything to end. 1.3 a.m. in front of the lobster trick movie, Sasha rocking the baby, Frenesi in a slow-tuned throb, breasts in torment, bathing in tube light, whispered, you'd better keep her out of my way, Mom. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It is just shattering. Yeah. Heart, soul, whatever you want to call shattering. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Luke, what about you? Uh, my quote was I already brought it up, but it's from the the section break on after the section break on two seventy four. So a provincial whiz kid called early, brass choirs on the soundtrack to power in the white mother city where he would become as he had dreamed, the careful product of older men, Brock of medium height, slender and fair haired carried with him a watchful, never-quite-trustworthy companion personality, feminine, underdeveloped, against whom his male version, supposedly running the unit, had to be equally vigilant. In dreams he could not control, in which lucid intervention was impossible, dreams that couldn't be denatured by drugs or alcohol, he was visited by his uneasy anima in a number of guises, notably as the madwoman in the attic. Brock would be moving through rooms of a large, splendid house belonging to people so rich and powerful he'd never even seen them. 
But while they allowed him to stay there, it was his job to make sure that all doors and windows, dozens of them everywhere, were secure and that no one, nothing had penetrated. This had to be done every day and finished with before nightfall. Uh, and it goes on from there. Um, I just I love the writing that section. Uh, I'm always a sucker for dream sequences, and it's a really well done one where it's kind of Sisyphean. Um, and it does it does kind of remind me of my own dream life in some ways. Um, it's it's in some ways even Kafka esque, which I know that Kate has kind of uh, pointed out some of the similarities. Being like the trial in this novel, which I do think are there. Um, but yeah, that was probably just my favorite prose, prose part of this section. It's a great one. Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my quote is the last paragraph of this chapter. Um, and it's it's hard to like segment it down to just one section of it because it's such a... It's such a... The, the paragraph itself is such a complete journey from... Frenessi waking up out of her depression to where her mental state is at to then just the the absolute shattering of it by the end of the the paragraph um that it was another case where uh, i i was crying through the entire thing um i started crying as as soon as it got to the section where she talks talks about her mother but then continued crying for different reasons by the way by the way that it ended um and i i i went back and forth on whether or not I should read it out loud, but I feel like it's so substantive to this chapter that it might be worth it. Um, Fernessi's tears would slow and dry. Her postpartum lust for death would cool. She would on a day not far off actually find herself liking this infant with the offbeat sense of humor. And she and Sasha would take up, not as before, but maybe no worse than before. But there were still secrets. Tresero County and Oklahoma secrets, more than any man she had ever wanted for anything. More than a full pardon from some unnamed agency for what she'd done. More than DL in her arms. The state in final rubble. More than what she'd done. More than DL in her arms. The state in final rubble. Guns silent. Tanks and bombs all melted down. More than anything she'd ever wished for over a long childhood of praying to a variety of Santas. Fernessy wanted. Would have given up all the rest for a chance to go back to when she and Sasha had talked hours, nights, with no restraints. Everything from penis folklore to... Mom, where do we go when we die? Of all her turnings, this turn against Sasha, her once-connected self, would remain a puzzle she would never quite solve. A mystery beyond any analysis she could bring to it. If her luck held, she'd never have to know. The baby was perfect cover. It made her something else. A mom. That was all. Just another mom and a nation of moms, and all she'd ever have to do to be safe was stay inside that particular fate. Bring up the kid grow into some version of Sasha, deal with Zoid and his footloose band and all the drawbacks there, forget Brock, the siege, Weed Atman's blood, 24 FPS, and the old sweet community, forget whoever she'd been, shoot inoffensive little home movies now and then, speak the right lines, stay within budget, rap each day, one by one, before she lost the light. Prairie could be her guaranteed salvation, pretending to be Prairie's mom, the worst lie, the basis betrayal. By the time she began to see that she might nonetheless have gone through with it, Brock Vond had re-entered the picture, at the heart of a small motorcade of unmarked Buicks, forcing her over near Pico and Fairfax, ordering her up against the car, kicking her legs and frisking her, fixing herself. Before she knew it, there were, they were in another motel room, 
After a while, her visits to Sasha dropped off, and when she made them, she came in reeking with Von Sweat, Von Semen. Couldn't Sasha smell what was going on? And his erect penis had become the joystick with which, hurtling into the future, she would keep trying to steer among the hazards and obstacles. The swooping monsters and alien projectiles of each game she would come, year by year, to stand before. Once again, out along after curfew, calls home forgotten, supply of coins dwindling, leaning over the bright display among the back aisles of a forbidden arcade. Rows of other players silent, unnoticed, closing time never announced, playing for nothing but the score itself. The row of numbers, a chance of entering her initials amongst those of other strangers for a brief time. No longer the time the world observed, but game time. Underground time. Time that could take her nowhere outside its own tight and falsely deathless perimeter. I mean, yeah, there's so much in that paragraph that is yeah. that you spend hours going through, but just the the beauty in which he rounds off where he started with her yearning to return to that time when she was a child and could talk to her mom about anything, and then understanding that that is, is, a, is or can be a springboard to her giving her child the same thing having the same mother-daughter relationship that she's yearning for in that moment, and how that is enough to propel her towards this idea that that's someone that she can be, and that prairie can represent this, you know, sense of salvation from everything that she's done. And then to have all of that get yanked out of her hands because Brock finally found her is just one of the most profoundly emotionally impacting moments in a book that I have read in a long time. Um... And yeah, I was, like I said, I was crying through the entire thing as a result of it. Yeah. It's, that was rough. Yeah. Cody, what about you? Well, the, most of the ones I had somehow all tied into Brock. So I decided I don't want to do that. So I found another <laughs> one. I don't want to, I don't want to end this with Brock getting the last recognition on here. So I'm going to choose uh, the, the scene where Hub, is is informed that he's going to be a grandfather. Uh, this is on page 287. An awkward time for any more men to be showing up, but not long before breakfast, who of all people should arrive in a taxi and lit up like a canteen truck but Hubble Gates, who'd received word of his new grandchild over the phone from Zoid at the opening of a discount furniture store outside Sacramento, just as he was cracking apart the first white flame carbons of the evening into sky-drilling beams of pure arc light. The band hired for the occasion struck up the Gershwins of the I Sing, baby. And that was how Hub entered grandfatherhood. Among the twinkling spinners and national bunting, the upbeat music with snow cone and hot dog stands and kids bouncing on the king-sized waterbeds out on the lot, and his own fleet of photon projectors aimed at the purple sky, calling out across the miles of Great Valley to wage-earning families snug at the table and restless cruisers out on an old 99 alike. Here we are. Forget the night falling and come on over. Have a look. TV, stereo, and appliances too. No cosigners or credit references, just your own honest face. One of those evenings when everything felt in harmony, at ease, and how long it had been since that had happened. So Hub decided, heck with it, history can go on pause for a little while. And, leaving the spotlights and trailer rigs to his crew, Dimitri and Ace, hopped a complicated system of buses, local and intercity, ending up long after midnight at a phone booth way out in Hacienda Heights, where he was obliged to go through a legal history check before the taxi would consent to charge him an arm and a leg to get here, hence the late, or did he mean early, hour. I just think it's a beautiful, well-written scene um, that I think just is nice to read, especially after all the awful darkness that led up to it and followed most of it. Yeah, it's a little oasis. (laughs) It's a nice little reprieve. 
Uh, what about most Pinchon part of the chapter? Does anyone have one that particularly stands out for them? Well, I was praying that nobody would choose the last chapter of the, uh, of the, or sorry, the last paragraph of the chapter. But of course, I chose a backup. <laughs> Cody. Uh, no, that that paragraph was exactly what I was going to read for the most pinching part because I do think that that is a certain type of uh, scene setting that only he really pulls off. Yeah, yeah, that's so, yeah, so that's true. Someone read it. I I went instead of a part. I I went with a more overarching idea that this this chapter I think really high, high, highlights his ability to write fully formed characters um, more so than we've seen in, in V and lot 49 and gravity's rainbow. Um, and it's a trend that would continue, especially with um, Mason and Dixon and against the day. I think those, those books in addition to Vineland have some of the most well done um, characters and, and character arcs and, and just humanity that is, that is, injected into these characters they don't ever really feel um flat or one-dimensional they they have a vibrancy and a life to them that um just adds such an amazing layer to everything else that's happening in this book um so that's that's my most pinch on part i think this is where he that skill of his really took off from here luke does one stick out to you uh, yeah, so this has already kind of been covered a good amount, um, I, but uh, I do think that Pynchon releasing a book in 1990 that so viscerally, um, and you know, I haven't I haven't experienced it myself, but I have read um, people's, you know, I've read a fair amount of, about it just kind of passively on the internet uh, about postpartum depression. I think that his depiction of postpartum depression is, you know, if this book came out today. His depiction would still be, you know, capital P powerful and capital I important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that, that the fact that it came out in 1990, when uh, awareness of BPD was probably a lot lower than it is today. Um, I don't, you know, I wasn't an adult back then, but I, I'm under the impression that it wasn't. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't even think it's mainstream today, but I do think it's, it's more, it's a lot more well known. Um, and it, it is kind of more of a, uh, it's, 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 it's becoming more and more well known. Uh, but I, I think that's kind of the most pigeon part because, you know, he's ahead of his time yet again. Um, he's showing knowledge that I assume you'd probably have to get out of like the DSM or like, um, like medical journals, medical textbooks. If that makes sense, you know, he's not, it's pretty specialized kind of niche knowledge that he shows a very like virtuosic, virtuosic um, handle of. Um, so I thought that that was kind of the most mentioned part of the chapter. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I don't know when that term was, was, was like coined or trademarked or whatever would apply to a medical diagnosis, but I feel like yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. I I don't think I really heard about that really being in depth discussed as a diagnosis until well into the two thousands. So for him to write about it in the nineties, especially with the the highly specialized language you're talking about, is very impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's it's hard for me to pick one i I think usually an element sticks out really easily in a lot of these chapters but i guess my most pinch on part would be maybe my most vineland part in that over especially over the last you know five to seven chapters or so in this book his his construction has really impressed me from the way that he's managing all of these sort of constant frame changes or, or skips through time back and forth from the perspective of multiple characters is a real testament to his ability as a writer to keep all that straight and all of that yeah. in a way that while at times difficult to parse through is is navigable on the page rather than just sort of marooning the reader um i would say that yeah just as a testament to what he's doing with this book and as a testament to his ability that really sticks out to me as being the most pinch on part of it yeah because if he didn't if those scenes weren't written the way they are yeah i mean it, the the book the narrative could easily fall apart like it it really a lot of it hinges on how well those transitions are are executed and yeah, yeah. it's not an easy thing to do very true so that that does bring us to the end of our discussion on chapter 13 um we're really close to completing vineland everyone we're really close to finishing our third book which is crazy um, well, it's not a 780-page payment that we're spending eight months on. Yeah, I, that's fair. I guess I'm more I'm thinking about it from the fact that this this podcast is almost a year old. Um, I know we are coming up on a year, which is a months. weird a weird thing to think about. Yeah, because um, it started sometime in March, and yep. so for us to be this far along, and also you know three books in, um, it's just it's it's quite crazy to think about. Um, yeah, we just have chapter 14 and 15 left to go through, and then we'll have a wrap-up episode as usual. But um, until next week, you know, thanks for listening, everyone, as always. Bye. See ya. Bye. Um, oh, so, okay, so, Kate, you were wanting to know about the Dune book. I was, um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so it is, it's good. I I had some... I had some issues with the the way it is formatted because the way it's done is it's broken into essentially three sections where it's it's pre-production filming and then post-production um but the the writing itself is done it's essentially like a normal non-fiction narrative account of the events and then there is a section of interviews that are it's it's essentially they're just kind of like interspersed between a common like part of that um history of the making of it so it's you know everyone it's different people talking about generally the same facet of the filmmaking process um so it gets to be a little bit redundant in that because most of the the oral history is already covered in the section before it it's just more granular in the oral history um so it 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 can feel a bit redundant as a result of that. However, it I, I really did enjoy it as far as like understanding what happened because that's one of those things like I've kind of always known a little bit about the the failed production history of it and and how just awful it was. Um but ultimately what it boiled down to is the the cast and crew really enjoyed making it they had a really good time nobody had anything negative to say about lynch they all were saying you know he's he was super nice he's weird in his own way like he would write part he would have this like part of the day where he was under his desk writing 
to the point where like if if someone from the studio came in he was there and he would just talk to them under his desk which is pure twin peaks <laughs> just i'm imagining sheriff truman like under his desk like for an hour and having to talk to people like that but um ultimately yeah the studio was was the main reason that the film failed um it was a lot of dino de laurentis um mismanaging financial aspects of it they filmed the whole thing in mexico and so that caused problems with communication where people weren't really understanding where to be and when to be at certain times um and it led to a lot of problems with non um non-mexican production like there were special effects people out of california that could not go to mexico and they had to do their financial stuff in weird ways because of, you know, sending money to and from Mexico. Um, on top of that, it was just a lot of, you know, once the film was done, I think that most people know how like much they butchered the final cut because Lynch didn't have final cut. They filmed, Lynch said there was like six hours of an actual like film there that exists. Um, he had it down to three, the studio, mainly Dino and, and the, the heads of Universal or whatever studio it was, uh, came in and forced it down to two. And then when it bombed at the box office, there were attempts to recut it with him. And he agreed, to, Lynch agreed to do it. Like he was going to work on a three-hour cut of it. And then the studio just went ahead and did it without him. That's where the Alan Smithy thing came from, was he was so pissed off about them not giving him a second chance to do it. And that was kind of the final nail in the coffin for him. So, um, but it, I mean, yeah, everyone had a good time. I did find out Sean Young has some behind the scenes footage that she shot. It's on her YouTube channel. That was kind of fun to watch. Um, but I'm going to go back and rewatch the movie, just having all the context of what happened in my head. It's still like, it's not a good movie. And I, <laughs> it's really hard to defend it. But I can see where Lynch was really trying, and, and especially having read it, like people, they, they really did make a good effort to do what they could with it. It's just there was so much that kept him from making it what it could have been. Yeah, it it really is a case, from my understanding, like you said, of the money men coming in and just cutting the thing up and yeah. rendering the film in a terrible, terrible final state. If anything good came of it, I think it was the the resulting disaster of that forced the studios i think to realize that if you're going to try and adapt a big book like that you have to be willing to chop it into parts i I don't think lord of the rings would have been a three movie thing if if dune hadn't happened i don't think the two dune movies we're getting would have happened if that hadn't happened i i think it had to be the sacrificial lamb to allow those kind of bigger multi-film projects to come about from from large book adaptations Mm mm-hmm as a minor correction, we're getting three. They greenlit Dune That's Messiah. That's true. They, they, they so. are doing Dune Messiah, which Lynch was Goodness. going to do, and they did find his, the, the guy who wrote the book found Lynch's uh, aborted screenplay for Dune 2. Oh, wow. I haven't had a chance to, to like actually read it, but I'm curious, because apparently Lynch liked Dune Messiah way more than he liked Dune. Which well, it, I don't disagree with him. I don't disagree with that either. <laughs> That's the full expression of what Dune is about. You kind of need Dune Messiah to fully yeah. get it. It yeah, it kind of brings home all the themes of what that book is getting at. Which is why I'm glad that the studio gave Denis 
what he wanted because he wanted to do a trilogy and adapt the second book into the third movie. It'll be perfect. They don't need to make anything after that. I don't need the rest of it. (laughs) It would be cool, but I don't think that become a sandworm. I I do. And I want to see how Denis would adapt that in particular, but I don't want that beautiful French Canadian man to be stuck into a studio contract for the next decade of his life. No, trying to find a way to make all six of those books into movies. It's, too much room for it. it it could become a hobbit situation where it just gets mm. absolutely fucked yeah yeah definitely so okay this is entirely unrelated to anything we've been talking about um but i found this over a week ago and i was very excited to share it with you guys last week okay um and then of course my my brain started baking so well, so this is in kind of accordance with Luke talking about how he spends too much time on Reddit. I found this <laughs> on Reddit. I found it in a the the R slash true lit worst or most hated books of twenty twenty three thread. Oh. And okay. um this guy in general he's he's not just a blowhard. I mean, I've seen him comment and talk about stuff before. You know, I, I respect his opinions in general. But um, he lists Gravity's Rainbow and Mason and Dixon as two of the books he read last year that he hated the most. And it's not that he disliked those books that I find uh, worthy of comment. It's his specific descriptions of why, which I'm just going to read now. He is not the ambitious revolutionary postmodern doorstopper tome writer mega genius that people would have you believe he is. He is a weird amalgam of Dickens and Burroughs who possesses a lot of talent. I'm convinced that most people like him just because of the Wikipedia rabbit hole Where's Waldo aspect of his work. And even then, the elusive aspect of his novels is highly exaggerated. You don't actually need your pension companion reader. Aside from that, he writes his characters as something less than characters or caricatures. They are names on a page who have a collection of facts to support their existence. Distinct emotions and personalities are foreign to the zone, apparently. This usually wouldn't matter if it weren't for extremely long passages about these names on the page. No matter how many pages Finchin writes about Mason, it appears he cannot add any interest to him other than he is melancholy because he loved his wife and she is dead. Jesus. And, um... Uh, on one level, um, I find it really funny that it's like he is a weird amalgam of Dickens and Burroughs who possesses a lot of talent as though that has anything as though that's an argument against any of his ambition. Um, but also, I just love the idea of someone reading Mason and Dixon and coming to the conclusion of like, but what else is there to talk about Mason? I get it. He misses his dead wife. Whoop de doo. I just, that's such a funny way to look at that book. It really, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. When you started reading that, that thing about the, the characters being names on a page, my, I was initially thinking he was just going to mention gravity's rainbow, but the fact that he's making, pointing that accusation at Mason and Dixon is just weird. weird. And again, like you said, like I, if you don't like the book, I get it. Like that's no, no book is for everybody, but that argument doesn't really hold a lot of water. And there's some real essays in these comments. I don't even want to go to that page. 
I did pretty good at picking out books I liked this year, and the only two that I didn't really end up enjoying were The Hotel New Hampshire by John Irving, and unfortunately, Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, which I read for the read-along. As far as the Calvino, it seemed as though we were all more or less in agreement that it was well-written, enjoyable in places, but overall pretty disappointing. That's sad. There's not much I can say that wouldn't be beating a dead horse at this point, but essentially I'd just say read Borges instead, lol. As to New Hotel New Hampshire, it honestly didn't land. That's all you have on Winter's Night of Traveler? <laughs> that book has so much to talk about in it. People really Actually, didn't like it in those threads. That's so weird. That I have a problem with those really short reviews like that. Like I feel like if you're gonna if you're gonna make a big statement, you're gonna need to back it up, and you got to do that in more than a few sentences. Mm-hmm. Well, so, um, that's that comment is by Pregnant Chihuahua, right? Or am I misremembering? Oh no, it's Banana Berry. Yep. Uh, gotta love parasocial relationships. <laughs> in any case, I, I have seen they do discuss it a lot more in the the. They're referring to a, a group read on If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Mm-hmm. So they probably were just like basically saying, well, remember how we all talked about it then? Yeah. Fair, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, I find the, the, the whole of the idea that people like to sit around talking about books that they don't, that they didn't like very strange, honestly. I do love this comment from Ray Primus. Frederick Bachman is awful. <laughs> Overlabored trite jokes and saccharine. Cliched plots and one-dimensional characters. Pick a struggle, bro. Baffling how he became such an international success. Pick a struggle, bro. <laughs> that is... Oh, my God. It's hilarious. Yeah. I have to give him credit for that. There's a couple people oh in here who did not like Solenoid Cody. I need to... Mm. Seth did a video on that I need to watch. And I'm going to reread it because there's so much that's going on. In there. I'm looking at all the books I read last year. I read, a, I read some good books last year. What's, what's funny is, uh, again, giving context on that specific forum, um, the Solenoid discussion in that thread is basically a hundred percent counter jerk because last year everybody was talking about solenoid in that subreddit constantly i don't know oh, really? yeah yeah that one really did hit the mainstream consciousness in a way that a lot of translated literature doesn't end up hitting it's still weirdly hard to find like mm-hmm. i don't ever see it in, in any bookstores um I, had I bought to, the only copy I ever found. I ordered mine. I had to order mine from uh, Barnes and Noble because I could not find it anywhere. Yeah, they just. I was lucky enough that they had a copy on the shelf at my Barnes and Noble. I just feel, I feel like I can't start reading it because of the fact that they still haven't fucking translated the second half of Blindness. And I just, I'm just like sitting here with the completionist part of my brain saying, "What the fuck, people." <laughs> Let me read this prior attempt at a magnum opus before I read this guy's second attempt at a magnum opus. Sure. <laughs> Please. On on the subject of Sean Cotter's work for Deep Vellum, um, he translated a book called Femme. That's really good. 
I, I loved that. That was another one that came out last year from that publisher. Which apparently people at Deep Vellum are listening, so hi, if this makes yeah, it hey. into the podcast. I'll, I'll put this on the end, yeah. I need to get up to <laughs> Dallas and go there, because uh, I need to. So, um, I will, so I've... I finished that Dune book today, but then I also, like, right before we recorded or started recording, I, I knocked out another chapter of uh, Cryptonomicon. That book's really picking up. Um, I'm like almost I'm just over 300 pages in, I think. Um, it definitely has some uh, Gravity's Rainbow vibes to it. In, I mean, it, in that they both, part of Cryptonomicon takes place during World War II. Um, but Stevenson's attention to detail regarding specifically regarding math and how math, uh, extrapolates into code breaking is there are scenes in this book that I like much like gravity's rainbow. Like when he really gets into the heavy, uh, science and physics stuff where I'm just like, okay, I, I'm sure what you're saying is right. And I will take it on good faith that what you're talking about is right. Cause this is all completely over my head. Um, but other than that, like it's it's been a very enjoyable read so far. Some point I'll get to it. It's on my shelf. It sounds really interesting, though. It is. I've not. So I reread Snow Crash. I think that was the last book I read last year, um, and that just got me onto a Stevenson kick. So mm-hmm. once I finish Cryptonomicon, I I don't know if I'm going to go finish the Baroque cycle just yet. Quicksilver was good. Have you read Canical for Leibovitz? No. I know that's another one of his major ones. I love that book. Canical I have. I have the Diamond Age on my shelf. Also, I've okay, heard that he didn't write Canical for Leibovitz. That was Walter and Miller Jr. Oh, yep. No, you're right. Yeah. Well, Canical for Leibovitz is really good. You should read that too, even though it's not a Neil Stevenson book. <laughs> I'm putting it on my to read right now. <laughs> and yes, Luke is correct. Um, no, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going to do after I finish Cryptonomicon. I don't want to burn myself out on Stevenson, so I'll probably go. Did you ever read the fourth else. Expanse novel? No, I do need to get back into that series because that was, I need a good, like, fast paced sci fi story. I finished yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide again last year, so I need something to scratch that sci fi itch. I'll always, I'll always encourage you to read that for your sci-fi itch. The th- the three fi- the th- ah, words, the three that I have read so far have been very good. Um, so I need to, I do need to finish that series. I do need to get around to. I never finished reading, uh, the Song of Ice and Fire series because I started watching the show around the same time I started reading the books, and the there was such a one to one for the first couple seasons that I just was like, I gotta just pick one of these two. Um, so I need to go finish that series as well. I need to read more Pratchett this year. I think that's going to be my goal is to finish not all of his stuff, but read more of his stuff. And the more of his stuff I read, the more I just feel like you're so close to greatness in all these novels. And it's just, it's just a little, just a little bit more of a push. (laughs) I reread Pyramids late last year also. No, I read that earlier this year. This is the first book I read this year, I think. Yeah, I, I, I like them. I've read multiple of those those um books now in that series whose name at discworld um but every one of them i'm like man i really like this but he's got a problem with endings 
Like, yeah, yeah, he's got yeah. he's got Stephen King syndrome a little bit, where the the ending doesn't always really stick. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a valid complaint. Are you focusing on any of this uh, sub series in particular? Um, I'm gonna read the Death sub series in total because Death has been consistently my favorite character that I'm has about, shown up yeah. in the other books that I've read. Yeah, the the only two books of Discworld that I really felt stuck the ending. And I've only read really the first half of the series. Uh, so I'm sorry if I've left anything out, Cody. Uh, we're, we're Reaper Man and then uh, Feet of Clay in the City Watch. Feet of Clay I've not read. Um, I read the first two City Watch novels, Guards, Guards, and Men at Arms. I have Feet of Clay on my shelf. Um, and then Reaper Man... I read Reaper Man a long time ago. I read Mort and then Reaper Man. And then I think I skipped. I think there's one after that. And then Hogfather is the next one in the Death series. Is Soul Music before? It might be Soul Music. music It's in there. Yeah, it might be that. It's either that or uh, Time Thief of Time. It's one of those two. Um, I need to go back and reread Reaper Man. But the Death series is. uh, I don't know. I go back and forth between that and the, the City Watch series those are both really good i don't know and like pratchett is it's good it's not anything that's like earth shattering necessarily but it's like it's a good fun read i kind of think like similar to to douglas adams like i think adams especially with the first hitchhiker's guide had a little bit more philosophically to say but um they're it's just good very like monty python-ish humor I think that's probably what draws me to those those two specifically. Totally fair. Yeah, I I love the humor in them. I love the fact that it is like Douglas Adams adjacent writing, even though it's, you know, fantasy instead of science fiction. I just, yeah, I just wish he could stick the landing more often. Like I was so... Small yeah. Gods was amazing for 98% of that book. And then just the way that it ramps up super quick to get to a conclusion at the end. And... I was like, okay, I like the way this ended, but it feels like you stepped up your speed from 25 miles an hour to 75 in the last, yeah. you know, 50 pages or whatever. I always, it, it always kind of feels like he was afraid of writing too much mm-hmm. and making his books too long. And so, yeah, the, it would, a lot of times the endings would just feel kind of rushed and like it, you know, maybe add a, a little bit, pad it a little bit to build up to it i don't know yeah i would have read 570 pages of small gods his Uh, his incredibly eloquent critique of religion and the way that he breaks it down from the belief perspective in the from the institutional perspective you know in in contrast to the individual believer is incredible um especially as a former minister i understand why people kept telling me to read that book um it's it's excellent and yeah the the ultimate conclusion he arrives at is great but everything just kind of blew up in the end. And I was like, okay, that's it's, it gets, it's a good Your Your comparison to Stephen King is good. Cause that's how I felt about under the dome. Oh like, my God. I was just about to, that <laughs> fucking book. <laughs> I was, was literally about to say that. Oh, yeah. I'm so pissed. I was so pissed at that ending. Cause that was such <laughs> a good book until the end. Yeah. I think I, I think I literally like dropped that book and yelled, what the fuck? When that, when the reveal happened, Mm-hmm. oh boy that's a, and that's the thing is like when King sticks the landing it's really good it's just so infrequent that that happens 
Yeah. I guess it makes it more valuable when it does. I don't know. 112263, I think, is still the best ending he's had. And that book fucking kills me every time I read that it. That might be his best book. I think it probably is. I I would I go back and forth, but it probably I genuinely like even knowing the ending and how everything comes together, like I fucking cry every time. Yeah, that mini series that they made of it too is also a really good adaptation. I can't watch it. I hate James Franco so much. I cannot, <laughs> cannot watch anything with him. So what you would really want is Kevin Costner to reprise his role from JFK <laughs> and then just have him play the role. Huh? Well, I don't know. It'd be better than James Franco. Good old Kevin Costner. Good old Kevin Costner. He's he's busy with his unlimited uh, Taylor Sheridan dollars. Man, that Yellowstone fever. I like I. OK, so I actually really like Taylor Sheridan a lot. Um, I think his his writing on Sons of Anarchy was really good. I think Wind River is one of the greatest films ever made, albeit I cannot watch it a second time. Um, I think that his script for Sicario is really amazing. And obviously that got turned into an excellent movie by Denis and the rest of the the crew with that i think hell or high water is also a great film and that kind of border trilogy that he created with sicario hell or high water and and wind river is an excellent sort of set of movies that get to the heart of kind of this not necessarily alternative history of america but like a like an unpopularized history of america in the modern age is is excellent i don't know what the fucking deal with yellowstone is i watched the first couple seasons of it when it first came out, just out of pure, like, well, I love everything else Taylor Sheridan has done, so why not? And it just seems like after the first couple seasons, it devolved into studio dollars and the studio playing Monopoly, because they have, like, five spinoff shows yeah, for Yellowstone just, now. I actually, I can summarize what Yellowstone is entirely. Okay. Um, so, Yellowstone is Taylor Sheridan realizing <laughs> that um, there's no way to get the general conservative block of this country to engage with anything on any deeper level except by completely pandering to them. <laughs> and he decided to make a show that attempts to drive home a lot of the same points about modernity that Cormac McCarthy and Thomas Pynchon uh, tried to in their novels by making a fucking soap opera about land ownership. And it watching Yellowstone, Yellowstone, um, yeah, it's not good at all. But 1883 <laughs> and 1923 are actually both really good little dramas, and um, they are entirely, essentially, Taylor Sheridan ripping off Cormac McCarthy. Okay. In terms of like philosophical substance. Maybe I'll watch those because I, I really could only take so much of Yellowstone before I was like, I God, no, I can't. Yeah, I no, never yeah. watched it. Yellowstone is not very good. I, I think that the fourth or fifth, whatever the fuck the last one was, was remarkably better than any of the previous ones because it, he, he figured out how to actually like write a season of show. Oh, that's good. I watched yeah. the first two seasons, but that's it. Yeah, season two is actually god awful. I'm amazed that they renewed it after that uh, <laughs> but yeah no i mean taylor sheridan is a really weird figure 
because like in 1923 there are just like episodes devoted to like anti-capitalist rhetoric wow and it's super super um ambitious but it just doesn't work i just don't think he has like he wants to write he wants to write novels but he doesn't feel like he has the ability to is the sense i get coming away from all of those shows yeah, I, I could definitely... I'd, I'd love to read a novel written by the Taylor Sheridan that wrote Wind River. Love to. I, I wouldn't be surprised if in a couple years' time Taylor Sheridan publishes, like, a Don Winslow-esque novel. Like, I could, I could definitely see that happening. Unless that's a reference to an author you guys don't understand. <laughs> I yeah, do I... Nothing. He so he wrote this trilogy. I want to say it's a trilogy, unless he's continuing to write it. Um, yeah, Power of the Dog, not the not the cowboy movie. Um, City on Fire, the Cartel, or the Border. He has this Border trilogy of novels that are about like modern drug and immigration enforcement that were like highly. Um, highly praised when they were coming out in the mid 2000s or a little bit earlier than that um i haven't read like a bunch of his work but i know that it's it's well regarded for its analysis of like border politics and um some of the same stuff that obviously taylor sheridan cares about so i i would not be shocked if he did something similar to that Yeah, the Power of the Dog trilogy, I guess, is what this is. Power of the Dog is the first one, the cartel is the second one, and then the border is number three. Huh. Uh, then this novel of the drug trade takes you deep inside a world riddled with corruption, betrayal, and bloody revenge. This is the Goodreads summary. Art Montana is an obsessive DEA agent. The Barrera brothers are heirs to a drug empire. Nora Hayden is a jaded teenager who becomes a high-class hooker. Father Parada is a powerful and incorrupt Catholic pri- incorruptible Catholic priest. Callan is an Irish kid from Hell's Kitchen who grows up to be a merciless hitman. And they are all trapped in the world of the Mexican drug federacy from the streets of New York City to Mexico City and Tijuana to the jungles of Central America. This is the war on drugs like you've never seen it. Ooh. The scope of this novel is really weird. It's like 20 years long. Yeah, I think he's trying to analyze it from like sort of like the different tendrils of its effects on other things. I mean, I I respect the mission. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it's even really good. Yeah, I I've, I've been in a reading slump lately. So I'm I'm trying to decide now whether I want to try and get through the rest of Discworld to break that or if maybe the power of the dog is the solution. <laughs> I find for, like personally if I'm in a slump going back to a familiar book that I've read and really like that tends to get me out of it. So I don't know if that would work for you but it tends to help me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've I've basically have stalled myself out reading um reading uh Miss Macintosh my darling 
Who'd have thunk that a 1,400-page poem might take might take might uh, take it out of you? And other books out of me. Yeah, <laughs> it's really good though. I, I still reading it. Yeah. Still recommend it. But uh, yeah, I'm planning on pausing a lot of my reading at the end of February because that's when the next installment of the Final Fantasy VII remake comes out. Oh. Yeah, so that's going to consume a good chunk of my time. That's fair. I need to like, I, 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 the last like quarter. Let me rephrase. Since I moved to Madison, <laughs> I have been given so many books to read by people, and people have been like, "Please, let's read this book together," and so on and so forth. That I am just in so entirely overwhelmed that at at this point, I'm I'm reading Vineland and then like one other book at a time. Just in order to like clear through this backlog, because like I'm still reading Little Women with my coworker. She needed to take a break for for school when that got like really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I'm still reading Meet Me in the Bathroom, uh, and I have like a couple hundred pages of that left. But then another person gave me In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, and she wants to read that with me. And then my neighbor Nika gave me a book to read too, and I still have like two other books that were given to me by somebody. And I just Jeez. need to like take these one at a time and just clear through it before I can actually get to reading anything else on my shelf. I feel like I haven't actually substantively read anything other than Vineland just because I keep reading pieces of stuff and talking to people about it. It's driving me like slowly crazy. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, a, a, a friend of mine um, really, he I don't know why, he really wanted to listen to um, my my bonus episode I did on Outer Dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and he felt like he had to read the book first. And of course, he um, misremembered and read the entirety of Blood Meridian instead. <laughs> okay. And so I've been wow. revisiting Blood Meridian to at least make that worth his while in the sense of being able to have like a conversation about it. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, when he referenced, when he was halfway through that book, basically being like, i looking forward to... Um, he he basically alluded to the fact that he was reading it so he could listen to my episode of the podcast on Outer Dark. I was just like, I don't know what to tell you, man. This is not the same book. <laughs> you are not reading Outer Dark. <laughs> you are reading an entirely different novel. Oh, that's funny. That I do uh, reference in the bonus episode, but I promise it's yeah. not the same thing. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, of, of all the books to mix up with each other, the best possible mix up. But um, fair. Yeah just not the same and that was uh both funny and kind of sad yeah speaking of blood meridian and cody's hatred of james franco did you know he was Uh originally going to direct that movie yes i did he made a version of mccarthy's following book um child of god that's just supposed to be the worst thing ever (laughs) well his ad- his adaptation of As I Lay Dying was pretty incomprehensible. I okay. So seeing that he adapted the sound and the fury made me made me like confused. Mm-hmm. Finding out that he did that with As I Lay Dying makes me very sad. Yeah. That's a book that I genuinely do think is almost underrated at this point in the way that people talk about. Really? I, I liked As I Lay Dying. That was really good. I think it like it really is pulling off a really specific trick that you know on, only only one book can really pull off. 
um, that I, I think more people should actually respect than they do. Because it's not just like, oh, it's hard for be hard's sake. Mm -hmm. it, it is actually getting at some real emotional depth there. I read that book when I was way too young. I read that book when I was like a freshman in high school. And mm. I just, I did not, I did not like it. I didn't get it. I thought it was bad. Um, that is one of those ones that I need to revisit now that I am an adult person with significantly more life experience <laughs> and understanding. I legitimately broke down crying when I got to my mom. My mother is a fish. Mm. Like it, it's, it's so touching. I think I read that. That was one of the first books I read for a lit crit class in college, my sophomore year. That makes sense. And that one stuck with me. She doesn't listen to any of this. Um, I, my sister, I got her a copy of Lot 49 when we started, and I got a text from her. She was like, I'm three chapters into this book, and I have no fucking idea what's happening. Oh no! And I think that was the last time I ever heard from her about it. So. <laughs> Period. Just heard from. Yeah. She died shortly thereafter. She read the book too hard. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Have you all listened to Don DeLillo should win the Nobel Prize? The podcast. No, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, there it's uh, one of them just appeared on Slow Learners. I want to say, and he wrote a. Here's the interview. Um, he wrote a thing on Gravity's Rainbow that I actually read a few years ago. That's I'll probably bring up once we get to Gravity's Rainbow. Um, it's about like the last section of Gravity's Rainbow. Now, a lot of it's like based on Seattle in the early '60s and like a, a World's Fair that they had. It's a guy who I, I guess is a scholar. He doesn't really talk about it on the show. And another guy, and they just go book by book with Delillo. Um, I've read everything by DeLillo except for like some plays and uncollected stories. And uh, so, yeah, they just go book by book and they've been trying to do the the whole book and they did, they try to do a three minute summary. They, they like time themselves, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Um, I've been really I've been impressed with the quality of it, um, to be honest. I've, I've really enjoyed it, but I've also I've read pretty much everything by DeLillo. So I was about to say I only read one, so I don't want to I'm not going to dive into that show just yet. Yeah, and they're going book by book from the beginning too. So, and he mm. he has a lot. He's a, a bigger amount of books than Pension does. By a good amount. The uh, half price books that's closest to me, which consistently has some of the craziest, like best stuff I've found, has a first edition hardcover of Radner's Star right now. Oh damn! Really? Yeah. Do you know how much it is? Uh, not off the top of my head. I can go back and see if it's still there though. Yeah, I mean, and not urgently but i'd be curious i have i saw a uh i had a copy of end zone that i ended up flipping um but i did my undergrad thesis on the similarities between end zone and infinite jest um oh really yeah there you know the eschaton scene yeah of and course that's basically a lot of that is based off of endgame there's like a lot of similar language and um yeah, I mean, Wallace talks about Dololo some in interviews and stuff. Yeah, he was definitely, like, one of Wallace's biggest influences. Yeah. Well, hold on, that guy on YouTube said Wallace is a bad writer. Well, technically, he said, his friend said that Wallace oh, okay. was a bad writer. I'm sorry. 
However, he does have another video buried in his channel from like seven years ago, whose title, and I didn't watch it because A, it was longer, and I, I, I don't know if I could suffer through longer than like a minute and 40 seconds of that guy. But the title, the main reason I had to avoid it was The Nothing That Is. It was what he called his video on it, which is the nothing insane. that you cut out almost entirely. You know. The nothing that was David Foster Wallace is what he called it. Wow. I was like, you can you can like not like his, you know, style of writing. It's not for everybody, but calling him a nothing is pretty That's insane. heavy criticism for a guy who <laughs> has about thirty percent of his videos are just about writing sex scenes. <laughs> Going through I, that guy's video upload history, it's pretty insane. Oh, it was a trip. <laughs> yeah. All right, let me. Uh, I'm gonna. I'll be right back. I'm gonna take my bowl, and I will be ready to go. Okay. Yeah, one second. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a short break. One second. Can you say something, Will? I was just gonna say that. I mean, it just feels like a mean, a mean premise for a, an essay. Yeah. Of any kind video or or whatever. I don't, I'm like curious if it's even anything close to a structured argument. Because I don't know if you watched that one video I sent the link to, but that so, wasn't even close to anything. So I got recommended that like a year ago now. I uh -huh. saw that video and I was like, what the fuck is this? And I watched it. And honestly, it was one of those things that my brain just decided didn't need to be remembered. <laughs> I remember thinking this is this is actually just a person who doesn't see the world in a remotely relatable manner, thinking that that means that they are, like, correct about everything. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, it, something about it, I was just like, okay, this is just a person who doesn't get anybody else and thinks that makes them smart. Couldn't, couldn't deal with it. He has a couple of videos where he seems to, um... What's the word I'm thinking of? Where he seems to imply that his blog has been commented on by like articles in the new yorker and the new york times which i just i don't believe i can't believe it who is this the same guy oh the same jesus I, um yeah i don't know that dude was something else was the was the new yorker article one of those that goes along the lines of the cabal of sexist writers on YouTube or something. It's, it's entirely possible. I did not watch those videos, but there is there is a part of me that is just incredibly interested in like the f the fact that you can anybody could just open a YouTube channel and just anyone can upload anything and you'll come across these videos that have like eight views on it. There is part of me that's super interested in just the human psyche that that, you know, uploads stuff like that, especially when this E. Cosmoetica guy, who's apparently named Dan Schneider, is uploading videos three years ago that look like he's recording them with like a handy cam in an office that remains with the wood style of like the early 2000s as far as it's it's like architecture and like decoration is concerned. And it's just this this one guy in a room somewhere just ranting at a camera and uploading it to YouTube day after day after day. I just Part of me finds that so fascinating and wants to just like watch a bunch of this guy's content just because it's just a man yelling in a random niche corner of the internet to a small audience. 
and part of the I'm looking at them right now, and part of the part of the problem I think is that uh, so many of these don't state his his uh, view up front, which I get. You know, you're trying to get people to click on it, but like on film noir, what? I, I don't want to watch an hour and 20 minutes of this man yelling about film noir, but I, I want to know, like, what am I in for right. before I start on Stanley Kubrick, part one? <laughs> have on, y'all there's heard a two-part Rod Serling one. <laughs> have you all heard of Chris Cantelmo? I don't think so. No. He, I came across him on Reddit uh, a few years ago because there's a big, there's all this drama because he was, um, like, spending all this money, like, hanging out on, like, uh, subreddit. He's like a, he's an old dude. He went he went to some Ivy League school. He had a very active YouTube channel where he would walk around and smoke DMT repeatedly. And he claimed that DMT cured autism and and it cured his brain cancer, so it cures all cancer. Oh. Um. And he would he would like smoke DMT and like go on walks and he he like stop. He like point like see the aliens in the trees and they would just be like trees moving in the wind, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, it was it was insane. Like he would upload like multiple times a day of him. Like he was constantly on DMT. Like all like y'all were talking about with Sid Barrett last week. It was like that, but with DMT. Oh my god, Jesus! Yeah. And he he got some like I like there were some internet profiles of him that were just like because of how like people were following it, just because of how fucking insane it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the more self destructive version of that Salvia guy. Oh, sure. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. It, for those who don't know, the guy who, like, smoked salvia every day for, like, three years and posted vlogs about it. Of him just, like, doing things like trying to drive or, you know, maintain a garden. Which, well, yeah, don't smoke salvia. That's not the <laughs> that's not the, the, the method of ingestion for that that's preferred. To go back to this E. Cosmoetica dude, I'm looking through his videos. There is a 24-second video titled How Infinite Jest Was Made. I don't understand how you have any sort of coherent statement on that in 24 I mean, seconds. It's going to be him videotaping a toilet. There's well, either a, that or it's going to start with him going, so I was going out to lunch the other day, and I got this friend from like the 1990s who was really into pot, and then it just is going to cut off right before he actually yeah. gets any further. He's got a 51-second video titled Kurt Vonnegut's Writerly Skill vs. Thomas Pinchon's Lack. 50 seconds, huh? 50 seconds, yeah. I'm, hey. I'm going to watch this later. This is good, good writing, content. and this is bad writing. Like, like and I subscribe. Could, we could have a discussion about Vonnegut and, and Pinchon. They're both, you know, definitive writers of their time. 51 seconds, I don't know what you're doing, but... Okay, he's, he's making video essays, Cody. He's, what do you mean you don't know what he's doing? Essays or sentences? Because most of these are just like fifty-second <laughs> clickbait titles. He's making like long-form shit posting and then slipping in short-form shit posts for the sake of what? I, I can't oh, yeah, grasp on this guy. <laughs> yeah, probably. He has 934 subscribers. I'd love to meet all of them. Hopefully most of them are, you know, concerned more than delighted. Right. And like then, how, ma- how many of them are just watching him because it's an interesting, like, anthropological case study? And how many of them are just genuinely like, oh, yeah, you know, this guy's making some really good points. He's got 
all these videos that are critiquing various writers and, and artists, and then has a video called Dan Schneider on why artistic criticism is so bad. Yeah, nobody's good, I, Cody. I don't, this, uh, none of this, none of this. This is the, you know, the societal critique we come to Dan Schneider for. 27 seconds, Godard's Breathless is a really bad film. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, I can somewhat agree with the overall take. I don't think you could do it in 20 seconds. I, I mean, whether or not you agreed, you, 20 seconds, no. Yeah. So I he just timed myself, <laughs> and I didn't have to slow down too much to make the sentence take that long to say. Mm-hmm. He has one video from a year ago called Superheroes Are Not Like Classical Gods. 14 seconds, Woody Allen's later films. <laughs> Dude, there's a lot to unpack. In They're all bad. Art, MMA, shit, and DFW and the gang. Three minutes and 37 seconds. I have to get out of this channel. I'm going down a rabbit hole. Is that last one just a song? Uh, it might be. It's three minutes and 37 seconds, so it's about average song length. He turned off the comments on this Vonnegut versus Pinchon one. I can't imagine why. I think the comments are off on almost everything he's uploaded because I've never would, seen a comment section. Same with likes and dislikes. He doesn't have those on on anything. Of course. Well, they turn him. that off for everyone. You can't see how many dislikes at least. Maybe not likes, but you can't see anyone's dislikes. Well, I know that like, yeah, you can't see dislikes, but you can see like how many likes there are to views is kind of the, the algorithm for it now, but you can't even see how many people have liked it, which means either nobody has liked it which is possible, or he just has it off. Well, he has a video that's 50 seconds long called Joe Rogan Geolist, S-C-I-O-L-I-S-T. S-C-I-O, what? S-C-I-O-L-I-S-T, Siolist, Geolist. Does he know how to use a keyboard? It's a word. Is it? A person who pretends to be knowledgeable and well-informed. So it's a fitting word, too. I have credit uh, where credit's due. Okay. It's very funny that that's in a bunch of videos he's uploaded about Jordan Peterson. <laughs> who we've previously established as the, the arch nemesis friend, friend of, of the this show. program. Friend of the show, Jordan friend Peterson. Show Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Hopefully he ate a vegetable today. Hopefully. I don't think so. I, I feel like he's still throwing back steaks every day of his life. <laughs> throwing back might be the best way to phrase that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't pour three hours of your life a week into listening to four people talk about a hyper-fixated review on... <laughs> <laughs> large dense books what a perfect I mean, poll quote for the show a hyper fixated review of large dense books 